Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast, uh, Plug. I'm, I'm going to do my plug up first. Oh, well, plugs, I guess. A couple of plugs. Uh, Darwin, Darwin Festival, I'm doing my Will Legal show. Uh, not many tickets left for that. It's on August 24th, I think. And uh, you'll want to get in quick if you want to come along and see my Will Legal show at the Darwin Festival. So that's for our Darwin listeners. And also, we now have a Patreon page. Now, what is Patreon? Basically, it's a way that you can help support the podcast to make sure that I can pay Podcast Mike and I can pay Mike Hal, our American producer, who edits it all together and makes that work. And I can pay James Fosdyke for the amazing art that he does for each episode Um Obviously, um, any money that we get goes back into the podcast, helps us coordinate things, will help hopefully in the future, you know, my capacity to travel, to record interviews, but also to give uh, Mike some more time, uh, you know, on the clock to be able to pursue interviews and coordinate them. So basically, if you can contribute, if you can help support the podcast, if you enjoyed the last hundred or so episodes and you think that um, this podcast is valuable to you and you would like to help support it, well, you can do that now by going to patreon.com slash philosophy. Patreon.com slash philosophy. You can join up for as little as a dollar a month. We tend to put out about four, four or five episodes a month. So, you know, it's 20 cents an episode. If you sign up for a dollar a month, plus there's a hundred that we've done already. I'm not going to do the maths, but the point being that uh, if you like it and you have the capacity to contribute and help support it, then that would be fantastic. And hopefully it will be, uh, it will lead to bigger and better things in the future. Speaking of plugs, today's guest on the podcast is a returning guest, but you haven't heard her first episode because it's one of the famous Missing Episodes comedy festival a couple of years ago. I Well, a year and a half ago, I sat down with Kitty Flanagan. Kitty Flanagan is one of Australia's greatest ever stand-up comedians. She is just super funny. Um, I have such a great deal of admiration for her, for her work. She's a brilliant person, great fun, and but also just one of the best comedians this country has ever produced, in my opinion. And love her. Absolutely love her. We did an episode together. I lost it. And I was too embarrassed to ask her back on the podcast. But eventually, uh, it turns out about 18 months is the amount of time that I have to go by before my embarrassment goes away and I can reapproach somebody. So it was really lovely to have this opportunity to sit down with Kitty. And she's just so easy to talk to that you will notice that the time flew by. And she missed an appointment. So I apologize to Kitty for that. I will say this. There's an opportunity you can see Kitty do her stand-up. She's in Mandra uh, on the 9th. She is in Perth on the 10th. Uh, She is, uh, this is all uh, August, of course. On the 16th, she is in Penrith. On the 17th, she is in Camden. And now these two. Uh, 21st and 22nd of August, she will be at Parramatta at the Riverside Theatres and she is recording her special. So go and see that. If you're in Sydney, if you're in the Parramatta area or if you just want to travel to see an amazing show, go along, be the best crowd you can possibly ever be so that Kitty uh, has the best version of her show that she's ever possibly done and that's the one that she has recorded because I can tell you as a stand-up comedian... Uh, that's what you want. You want the one that... <laughs> she's done plenty of nights where it's absolutely killed. She wants the one that she records to be one that absolutely killed. So go along and see her. Parramatta, Riverside Theatres, uh, the 21st and 22nd of August. And uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for sharing it around. Thanks for all the feedback I've been getting. If you haven't had a chance yet and you haven't checked out Craig Coombs' episode, which was the 100th episode, I made it the 100th episode for a reason. I know that Craig... Might be one of those names that people skip by because they don't recognize his name. All I would say is I recommend having a listen to that podcast. It's one of my favorite ones that I've got to do. And 
I hope you're going to enjoy this one too with Kitty. So here she is, Kitty Flanagan. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Uh, we're, we're arranging pets. We're arranging dogs at the moment. This is a home episode, which means uh, Ramona and Winnie are both here uh, for this episode of the podcast. And uh, uh, neither of them are currently sitting on my lap. For those who are regular listeners to the podcast, normally Ramona uh, sits on my lap and then Winnie uh, tends to uh, you know, plea for affection from uh, the guests on the podcast, but today they have both gone to uh, my guests. My guest is a returning guest, although <laughs> you won't have heard her previous episode because it's uh, famously one of the lost episodes of this podcast. Uh, after today's recording, we're down to only one uh, lost episode. Well, it doesn't mean there was more than one lost episode. All right. Anyway, there's been heaps of lost episodes, <laughs> but the, prov- the, the thing that I have done is I've managed eventually to get the people back to to do the episode and uh the, after today it means that only Jason Burns episode is uh, is is one that I still have to do another time anyway that's a lot of rambling at the start but I was hoping that if I ramble for long enough the dogs might settle down and <laughs> might, but they haven't they've decided not to so we're just going to have to actually start the podcast yeah that's so fine this is how the podcast starts it's how it started last time but it's how it's going to start this time uh guest who are you who, me? Yes, that's how oh. it starts. You don't remember that from last night? I don't. I ask at the start who you are. That's oh. how the podcast starts. Okay. Uh, I'm Kitty Flanagan and the Lost Post podcast was probably the most interesting and fascinating I've ever been. So what a shame. What, what a, a shame. shame that was lost. <laughs> what a shame. I just, I don't think I've ever been more fascinating. Ever been more funny? Ever been more <laughs> no, fascinating? No, brilliant. Ever been more insightful about the nature of existence? <laughs> I would have been given my own show on the strength of that podcast. But sadly, it, lost. Lost. And mm. I, as much as I would like to be able to blame somebody else, Kitty, I believe that the, the fact that it was lost was almost entirely, when I say almost entirely, I probably could also use this sentence without the word almost, which was, <laughs> it was entirely my fault. I, yeah, I need to know what happened. So I had your episode and Jason Burns' episode on the same uh you know, so on the same recording. Yeah. And so normally what I have to do is like take it off the little machine that I recorded on and then I dump it onto my computer and then I um, transfer it to the editor who edits it together. And then at that stage, it's done. And so I can erase, uh-huh. you know, the, the podcast from uh, the, the recorder here so that I, you know, have space for other ones. Um Winnie. That's Winnie, not me. (laughs) Winnie, come here. Why don't you just come over here? Um, Yeah, so, uh, and then, but normally it stays on my computer for a while so that if something goes wrong, but anyway. Got cocky. Somehow I've managed to erase it from Just transferred it and went, erase that. Well, you know what it was? The problem was (laughs) that um, it was during comedy, comedy festival. Winnie, come here. Come on. It was due, oh yeah, that's right. You were you were scratching her, and you stopped scratching oh, her, is that and she what decided it is? Sorry, to bub. be demanding hmm. and bark. Um, my computer was telling me that I had used up all my memory, 
It turns out it was a, like that was some sort of computer issue that I should have dealt with in ways other than just going through <laughs> things and going, I probably don't need this anymore. And then, and then erasing your podcast and Jason's podcast. So anyway, that's a long preamble. It was lost. It was my fault. Luckily, you're back. And we're I'm gonna, Kitty Flanagan. <laughs> we're going to do it again. You, you're still Kitty Flanagan. Oh. You're in a different point of your life than when we talked last time, you know. Sure. Um, oh, yeah. Lots happened. Well... Some things have happened since last <laughs> time, I think. Um, okay, so tell me, um, it, it, it starts by me asking um, if you have a philosophy. That's normally what I ask people. Um, and I asked you that last time. And yes. And you did have one. So. I did. Oh, uh, and I know what it is. Yeah. Um, it's still the same, although I have – and it's interesting because my philosophy is don't do things for the money, never do something for the money. And since we last spoke, I did something for the money. And I learned why my philosophy is don't things do things for the money because it wasn't it wasn't worth it, um, and I really wished that I hadn't done it. <laughs> now, uh, are you going to tell me what that that is? It was a, it, it was a it was a corporate thing, but it just you know I just they can catch you at the wrong time. They can catch you at a time where I'd finished on the weekly. I'd finished Utopia, and I just you know you just get that thing of oh my god, I'm never going to work again. You just feel like, I don't know why, something always comes up, but they just catch you in that moment and you go, yeah, I better do that because I'm never going to work again. And then I did it and I went, don't, why, why did you do that? You didn't, you shouldn't have done it. Just go and do more gigs if that's what, <laughs> if that's what it takes. <laughs> and like, I don't, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to pry into specifics, mm. but was there some aspect of it in particular that made you think this was not worth me doing this? Look, ultimately they were all nice people and but I just find it I find it very difficult to um I guess I'm always impressed in one way by people who've swallowed the whole corporate pill. Like I kind of always am very cynical about if you worked in a corporation, surely you would see it for what it was and go, This is all a bit of a joke and we're all but when people really genuinely believe in their company, that's great. But I find that a really hard thing to deal with where I'm going, oh, my God, you're serious. You really do think that this company of yours is the bee's knees <laughs> and that everything – do you do you understand what I mean? Like yeah, I guess I it's just because the world that we live in with comedy is just so – it's always supposed, it's not supposed to be, but you can't help but always be cynical. You're always looking at something to try and find the funny bit in it. And I guess when I'm trying to find the funny bit in a company and they don't find it funny because they think it's really seriously a great thing, I, I just find it really difficult to deal with those people. Have you ever signed up to something that you've believed in Fully, like, are you? Does your brain allow you to believe in things in the way that these people believe in their company? Look, I guess that's what it is too. I wish that I could. I wish that I could wholeheartedly embrace something. There's just always one part of me just going, "Shut up!" I was even listening to someone being really lovely on the radio the other day. She was so warm. She was so loving what she did, and all I could think in the back of my mind was, oh, "Shut up!" Shut up! And I just, what is wrong with me? Why can't I just let her have her beautiful outlook? Why is there always a part of me that just going, she can't seriously believe that? Why is there? Where do you I don't think, know. Where does that come from? I don't know. And I, I, I'm concerned about it because I want to try and I want to be a believer. I feel like I could never, ever be sucked into a cult, ever. I just, I'm, I'm immune. 
I mean, that might come from being brought up Catholic as well, but you would. I think Catholics probably are immune to cults. We've just we've we've seen it all. Well, I I'm the, I understand what you mean. You've been involved in a you know a large organised you know cult that yeah. know, uses all the same practices and methods of like hooking people into the system that these other cults do. So when you experience them, you're like, ah, oh, this is just like a different version of the Catholic Church, or yeah. this is just a different version of church. But there are some people who go from replacing. They take one of those things out of their life, and then they spend the rest of their life going, "Well, I'm just gonna, I'm just going to go and find." It wasn't that this thing was the wrong thing. I want to believe. I want to, you know, go. There's a rule, list of rules, and if I follow those rules, everything's going to be fine. It's just not this one that I need. Yeah. Maybe it's going to be yoga, or maybe it's going to be meditation, or maybe it's a different religion, or you know, maybe it's a a cult. Is there any aspect of cult life that uh, appeals to you? <laughs> But they always seem very happy, like in their not knowing of anything outside of the world. And I guess that's what I find with the corporate thing as well. I find it a bit cultish when they're that into their giant corporation and it's not just a front in order to get a promotion, that they genuinely do believe that their seats are better or their things are better and that I think, wow, that's lucky for you. You found this company and you're not working for the rival because you really believe in this one. Like, how lucky are you? you know? Yeah. You're lucky you don't work for the people who make the third best seats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how would you cope? Like, you'd just be... Well, yeah, seats are good, man, but... Yeah. <laughs> the real believers. I mean, they're practical. You can see them in and stuff, but... And I think that's what it is. I just I just never realised how many true believers there are out there because I did another – this is years ago now that I did a corporate gig for um, a pharmaceutical uh-huh. company. And, I mean, first of all, you know, the rule was don't make any jokes about drugs. It's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to do that. Um, but it was like a sales thing. You know, they were giving out awards for the best yeah, people sure. who'd sold the most. And, again – you know, the only real company I'd been in was advertising and I'd been to award nights for advertising. And oh, do they have award nights for advertising? <laughs> and while everyone pretends, you know, they don't want the awards and they do want the awards, there's still that kind of veneer of ugh, awards, aren't they a pain in the ass? Yeah. You know, as people drag themselves up to the stage, yeah. you know, going, oh, guys, yeah. you know, what's this all about? But in the pharmaceutical world, my God, they couldn't have been happier to get yeah. that award. And I liked that rather than pretending they didn't want it. You know, there's always that sort of thing of, oh, let's be cool and pretend we don't want it, but seriously, we do want an award. These people were just like, I sold the most and I'm the best and woo, this guy's from our team. And it's a, it's a real world. I must admit to you, because I rarely do corporate work yeah. either, um, and I, the most recent one I did was a couple of years ago, but it was for a pharmaceutical company, <laughs> and I was overwhelmed by how positive they were about everything. And how I much think they're all on the drugs. I was like, I say, like, I don't know about the drugs you sell to <laughs> the hospitals and the doctors, but whatever drugs you sell into each other, give me like five of those. Yeah, because they were. So supportive of each other. They were so into the idea of selling drugs in this pharmaceutical company. And I remember it just being, also as a comedian, actually quite a good night. Like, oh, like, oh this is like an easy gig for yeah. me to host. They're, everyone's having a They're good time. They're really into it. They're really enjoying themselves. No, I agree. It was, it was a good gig. But, yeah, I don't do many corporates anymore either because 
And it was something that somebody said to me. I, it was actually a guy called Hamish who's a sports guy, I think, on Seven. I did a gig with Hamish him once. McLaughlin? Yeah. And I turned up to this corporate gig and it was just a debacle and nothing was organised right. You know, it's never set up well for comedy. And um, and this guy was terrific. He just kind of said, look, this is their big night, so let's do what we can. And I just went, yeah, he's right. It's their big night. Don't come in with your sarcastic attitude of, Ugh, God, here I am at a bloody awards night for whatever this is. And, like, just embrace the fact that this is their this is their moment. Like, let them have their moment. You but know, that, I get my moment whenever I want it on stage. Like, this is their moment. Don't be a cynic about it. If you're going to do them, then you have to swallow the pill and be positive about it, which is why I then sort of went, okay, I'm not going <laughs> to no, take gonna them. <laughs> I'm only going to take them every now and again <laughs> if I feel like, like I can. Oh, this is a real breakthrough. I've had a real change in mindset. It's not about me. It's about them. And all I've got to do is put myself into the mindset of <laughs> I'm here for them. And then I went, no, fuck that. I'm not doing these anymore. This is way too hard. <laughs> no, I, I do them every now and again because then I can muster up the strength to go, woo It's all about the spirit of whatever company this is. I, and because and I, I want to do a good yes, job for people. I don't want to be rubbish. So I just, you But know. it is a difference between like a Hamish McLaughlin's mindset, like a TV presenter who's like, this is all about them, and the comedian's mindset, which is, this is all about me. But, and but <laughs> this is a good, this is a good gig for comedy. Whether the dance floor, like the, you know, and I'm yeah. sure you've been in the exact same situation where you walk in and oh. you're expected to do like comedy from the stage where, like, there's a de- there's a dance floor because yeah. later on they're going to have a DJ or a band or whatever, yeah. and that's where the dance floor will be. Yeah. But you as the comedian, you're like, well, that's a really big gap where like the that's audience That's just a moat be. for the jokes to fall into. And so you're, you're shitty because it's not the perfect situation for you. And they're like, yeah, because more people are interested in dancing later than they are in tell- you telling I your little know. riddles right now. <laughs> but that's what I'm waiting for them to realise. Like most of the time you turn up to these corporate gigs and you want to say whoever organised yeah. this probably really likes me and they saw me at a comedy club and they thought this would be great. But... The majority of people here, they would rather just be having a drink, getting their prizes, and then having a dance at the end. And that is absolutely fine. Yeah. I don't want to go to an event where I have to sit and pay attention to someone for 30 minutes no. either. In quiet, like be quiet, shut up, behave. Whereas that's what you need as a comedian for it to work. So the things don't really go together. <laughs> Corporate gigs and comedians, and yet you're always, they always think, oh, we'll have a comedian. So it is, it is interesting. So don't do things. For don't the do money. things for the money. Don't do things for and, the money. And and it's good to to do something for the money occasionally. You go. Oh no, I'm right. Yeah. Don't do things for the money. But what about how do you then balance? Because I, I I agree with you, but also, you know, when you have chosen this to do as your living, yeah, the very nature of the you know doing it, it means that sometimes the financial reward of something has to be taken into consideration yeah right or at least balanced out against you know not everything can be just purely you know i love this and they're you know therefore you know it's or or can it be like i mean it's it's an interesting question it's one i think about a lot money's no i'm 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 yeah i'm speaking from a very privileged position at the moment like things may change in you know a few years (laughs) or even next year because my current tour is about to run out and uh Mine was barking at a, an empty, uh, an empty bag. So. Could could have been something in there. It looks threatening. It could have been. All right, come on, come up here. It was from Gumtree. It was probably 
She was barking at the expense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm lucky at the moment because I've been doing uh, my own touring. And yeah. so, you know, a tour sort of usually lasts me two years and I'm doing what I want to do. And so then I'm in a position where I can pick and choose the other work that I want to do because I've got an income coming in from, you know, two years worth of touring around. But my tour is coming to an end in August and uh, I've got to write a new show. And um, I'm not quite as productive as you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I now have to come up with another hour and 20. And uh, who knows, I might be back on that corporate circuit uh, yeah. next year. Could could well be available. <laughs> but I'll be an enthusiast. <laughs> I'll have the right attitude. This is about them, guys. Oh. This is about them. It's not about me anymore. No. Uh, so it is a very uh, – the, the luxury of, you know, being able to do your own show – um, and do your own show and, you know, create an environment where, you know, it is, you know, the audience are there to see you. Yeah. Uh, the environment is, you know, normally one of, you know, you're playing good venues, you know, yeah. so you are at at some nice theatres, you're touring around, you're being looked after, all these sort of things. Yeah, I'm, and- look, I'm incredibly spoiled and I do know that and it makes you quite spoiled in your attitude as well, because you can say no to pretty much everything. Well, so that's what I wanted to ask you about is that because I feel, I mean, I have a lot of uh, empathy, sympathy, understanding of what it is that you're saying, because it's, you know, obviously something that I deal with myself. And mm. I often find that it does, I have to be careful when I go to the other things, like even, you know, whether it be the TV or the radio or these sort of things, yeah, to not just like to hide my disdain. <laughs> Well, I think <laughs> no, it's not even... That's unfair. The disdain's not the right word. But to hide the fact that you've gone from doing something that is so ideally set up yeah. for you and what you love... Yeah. ...that when anything is even slightly less than that... Yeah. ...it can feel like it's a problem. See, I don't think it makes you feel disdainful. I think it makes you... I don't even know what the word is, but it makes me very quick to say, fuck it. Yeah. Okay. That's what it does. Like, you know, if something's not going my way, it's like... Pfft, do you know what? Don't want to do it. It's like, wow, gee. (laughs) (laughs) You know, pitching TV shows and people saying, oh, but you know, you'd have to do this and you'd have to do that. And I was like, you know what? Don't even want to do it. Don't want to do it. Just won't do it. I'm just going to go back and do some more shows. Just going to go back on tour. And I don't, like in a way that's a really good thing, but it also, I guess, makes you possibly less, Maybe it makes you less fun to work with because you're just constantly willing to walk away from something if it doesn't suit you. <laughs> I mean, certainly makes you less reliable. Well, well if I if I take the gig, yeah. I'm 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 you're in dedicated 100%, to it. Yes, exactly. But I um I just think yeah, it's that thing of if I can't do it my way, yeah. I don't want to do it. Yeah. And it's like that's not to say though that I won't do things for other people. If I really, I mean, I couldn't be luckier working for Working Dog on Utopia. I'll do whatever they tell me. You know, their way is better than my way. You know, whatever they want to tell me, I will do it because I just, you know, I I love the way they work and I love the way they operate. But other times it's like, no, nah, I don't want to do it your way. You don't want to do it my way. Well, then see ya. All I'm right, going back done. on tour. <laughs> yes. So I quite like that freedom because it's taken a long time to get there as well. Of course. So... Yes, but I guess maybe I should start planning for when it's going to go away and I might need to 
you know, men to feel those bridges of burn. Well, it's the freedom that you've earned for a start, which mm. I think is worth acknowledging because mm. it nobody gives you that freedom. You, you've had to earn that freedom. <laughs> but secondly, do you worry about that idea? Because I, I certainly do, which is there was so much of my career of doing other things where I was able to make the choices that I wanted to make. Yeah. You know, and not get have to do some show that I didn't want to do. Yeah, for financial reasons or whatever, which is a great luxury. And the yeah. thing that gave me all that, you know, capacity to make those decisions was the fact that I had, I could go and I could always just go back and do my shows. Yeah. You know, but I worry now that I'm getting to an age where I see this like new generation of cool, young, yeah. interesting people come through. And I understand that like, it's not like there's some guarantee that people are going to come and see my shows forever. Like maybe there'll be a time where, yeah, the venues that I play, instead of getting bigger all the time, start to go back the other way. Yeah. And, and do, you, do you think about that? Is yeah, that a, absolutely. A that I comes mean, into your mind? of course, that's, you know, that's all I think about because I'm, I, I feel like I'm a, I'm certainly not an optimist, but I'm, I, I'm, I don't think I'm a pessimist either. I'm a pessimistic optimist in that I always think about the worst because then you won't be disappointed. Like, that's my view right if you just imagine the worst then you're never going to be disappointed you can only be pleasantly surprised so but so i the glass is half full but it's probably poison (laughs) 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 we've got to acknowledge the fact could be poison yes that's the perfect analogy poison you're like yeah that's perfect half a glass of not poison water i'm gonna drink that i didn't die hey well done everyone that is that is good news for me But, um, yeah, and because at the moment, you know, the, the touring, the last tour in particular has, has gone really well and, you know, I sold really well around the country and didn't have any problem, even to the point where I wasn't having to do an awful lot of um, publicity for it, which is just golden time. Like, yeah. you know, I wasn't have, having to get on the radio every morning and go, I'm in this town today, come and see this show. It was all just kind of going well. And so the first thing I start thinking about is, well, only downhill from here, I guess. <laughs> you know, can't 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 get any better. So, um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I'm in that hard thing now where it's taken me four kind of tours to get to that point, and now I feel like okay, well, this is the apex. So, I guess now we start coming down the other side, and then eventually I'm performing at 11 a.m. doing morning melodies with when Tony Lamond. I'm very interested in your shows and you as a performer. Um, when are you? When when is the show? at its at its best or how do you know the show's at its best like okay so let me start here and we'll get to that mm. maybe that jumped in a bit too deep you're about to start a new show right mm. so yeah. how long does it take so if you're you know you're going to find another 70 80 minutes of a new show yeah. how, how long <clears throat> how long do you sort of leave yourself to go this is the amount of time it will take me to put that together well, I, I do it in, like, I have to, because I have to dump the whole lot because I don't work like you used to in, um, when I was in the UK and, you know, you were just constantly on the club circuit. So five minutes of new would creep in and then five minutes of old would creep out and you just built up material that way. Whereas now, because I tour around, you have to kind of always take people a brand new set of material. You can't be doing anything you did last time. Otherwise they go, oh, we saw that last time. So... I literally have to get into the end of a tour and burn the whole lot and then start again from scratch. And every time it comes around, I just go, I think that's it. I don't think I've got another one. 
every single time. And my sister always goes, oh, you're just so tedious. You say this every single time. And every time we start the new show and we'll start getting it on the road and I'll go, it's not as good as the last one. There's not as many laughs in it. It's not as good. It's not as good. And she goes, oh. And by the end of it, I'm going, this is the best show I've done. I think this is the best show. I think this is better than the others. I think it's just like, oh, God, this is just like <laughs> Groundhog Day with you. But, yeah, so what I do is um, I, I started a system where I just book a couple of weeks at a little theatre in Canberra, just about 90 seats, and I take a whiteboard on stage with me and do um, just write all my ideas on the whiteboard and just literally try out an hour of new stuff. Is there any particular reason you choose Canberra? Uh, because they've got that beautiful little theatre there, the Courtyard Theatre, at the... which is the perfect size. Um, it's really hard to find somewhere in... Sydney, I, no, it's a, it's a great, it's a. I've I've run in shows in that theatre, and it's, just um, perfect. it's a great theatre for that. Yeah. And I I think that Canberra audiences are pretty good at running in shows in front of because you get a sort of, I think there's a bit of a cross section of. I, I find if you test things on a Canberra audience, yeah, the jokes tend to work in other places. Yeah, well. right. Yeah. Oh, I never thought of that because I'll do two weeks there, then I'll do two weeks in Sydney somewhere wherever um, I've done the Seymour Centre, the little one mm-hmm. there, and. Um, there used to be that little fire trap in um, Darlinghurst. Oh, yeah. Do you know that one? Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's a little black spider hole. Um, but great, about 60 seats. And same thing, just take the whiteboard on. And then there's another place now up in um, up, uh, up the central coast where I'll do another two weeks. So all in all, I'll do sort of between six and eight weeks of – but every night just going on with my whiteboard in front of 60 people and, yeah, crossing things off that – don't work so and leaving things on if they yeah, do work. when you've got a whiteboard, what's on the whiteboard? Just all the ideas that I've had because I can't remember them. So I write them all up there and then just test them out. And, and and that's the beauty as well because then you've got license for if something doesn't work, you just turn around and rub it off the board. That gets a laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone just acknowledges, all right. We all know that didn't work. That's coming off. Do you ever worry that you um, develop too much good whiteboard-related material? <laughs> Like, you know, like you're getting, to, you're like, there's a lot of big laughs in this show, but they're mostly around what I'm doing with the whiteboard. That's that's how you'll know is when my show that I start touring is yeah. actually called The Whiteboard Show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, nothing much has come out of it. So, um, um, where do those ideas start? Like, when you, the ideas that are on the whiteboard, are they things that you are, like, while you're doing your other show, have you been kind of, you know, jotting some ideas down, starting to yeah, think about Yeah, a few what things, the next but I'm thing not is? as conscientious as I should be. I wish I was. I wish I was on all the time, but I'm just not one of those people that – and I'm lazy as well. Like I think of something, I think that's a really good idea. That's so good, I'll remember that. I never do. No. You've got to write it down. You've got to write it down. And I just – it really kills me that the number of times I'm too lazy to write something down. Oh, I mean, if particularly if you're somewhere where there isn't a pen or paper or somewhere where you can write it down. Like yeah. you know, you're out on a walk or whatever and the idea in your head, oh, that is actually a really good idea. I should write that down. And you're like, I don't know, I'll remember that. Yeah, it's, that's, that's you'll great. You'll never remember. I know, isn't it weird? But um, <laughs> yeah, so I really only start, like I've really only started thinking about stuff like and thinking, okay, you've got to start writing stuff down now. Only started doing that in earnest for the last kind of, you know, month or six weeks because I know the tryout shows are coming up and I'll have to have something. But every single time I've done the first night of my tryout shows, um, I've been on my way to Canberra driving down there and had the genuine thought of, do you know what, you can just keep driving. Just don't worry about it. Stephen Fry didn't turn up for a gig once, just just 
phoned in and said, sorry, I'm not coming. You don't have to go. They can get their money back. Like I always have that thought of it. Just, just keep going. It's that much of a fear that I have nothing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to get up there. I'm not going to be able to do it because it's just really hard doing all new. Like usually you just do, here's a bit of tried and true. I'll slip in a bit of new stuff. Now a bit of old stuff just to sort of bookend it. So people don't notice there's a ship bit in the middle there, but, um, it's, yeah, I, I just, I get really panicky driving to that gig just going, I, I'm not, it's not going to happen. When you start out with the show, do you have a, like a, an aim for what the show might be or, you know, like, do you, like, do you go in with no. a sort of like, or? Okay. No, it's never, it's never been that. It always, it, um, it presents itself as the, as the kind of shows go on. Like suddenly I start going, okay, that, that goes with that because that's what I need to eventually get to is not a through line so much but at least a sort of a narrative that this connects to this connects to this connects to this because that's the only way I can remember things and tell a story anyway because people who's going oh my god it's amazing how you remember it. it's like it's not really like in my head everything connects to the next thing to yeah, the next it all thing. makes sense to each yeah. other once you start telling it yeah it tells itself there's there's a logic to it in my head it may not you know be that obvious to people but in my head I know what comes after this because that that triggers that thought, triggers that, triggers that. So, but yeah, I, I never have that at the beginning. That always just shows itself. And there's always one bit, and I remember one particular show, I think it was my Hello Kitty show, there was always one particular bit that I could just never, ever find a a good segue or a link for. And I just, every time I see that show, I always think, oh, there it is, there's that clunky gear change. <laughs> It's like everything is going along really smoothly and then I just, you know, go from uh. bloody fourth to first <clears throat> as we just, oh, completely new random thought that's, oh, I'm pretending that's connected but it isn't and away we go starting again. There's it always really annoyed me. I could never, and I moved things around and I tried to get it right and I could never, ever get that connection. I had a bit in this year's show where two ideas were definitely connected in my mind to each other but... I could just tell the audience wasn't making the same connection, you know? Like, I was like, in my head, I'm like, this logically goes on to this. Yeah. But I could just tell often when I was doing it that I was just like, ah, see, the audience have looked away for a second and I'm talking about something else and they're not sure why. Yeah. <laughs> um, how much does the show change in that time like I mean obviously you're starting with just a bunch of ideas but when does it start to take shape and then once it's kind of in a shape shape mm. you know like where you're starting to go here's like something you might consider consider to be a draft or something then you're like how much does it then once you start doing it in front of like you know proper audiences how much does it change from when you start doing it to you know when you're into the tour it doesn't feel like it changes much, but then when I look back, I realize it really has changed a lot. Like just little things get added and things get better and just, it's not necessarily new ideas coming into it, but just everything extends and becomes better. There are just so many more little bits within the story. And that's kind of my style and what I like anyway, is just a story with lots of really funny bits along the way. It's not jokes so much. Um, and I think, yeah, even things that were just one line at the beginning have now kind of become their own little bit, which is what I really enjoy, is kind of going, oh, yeah, I never had that at the beginning. It wasn't even close. Uh, style-wise, who who influenced you? Where did your style come from? Or did it was it just, you know, is it just you? 
Well, I didn't I didn't really have a style and I was particularly careful in the beginning. I never used to watch anyone because um like not, you know, famous comedians. I wasn't a comedy buff or enthusiast and I didn't I did that intentionally because I know I'm quite a sponge and a mimic uh-huh. and I would take people's cadence or rhythms delivery it would just go like if I even when I used to do the circuit in the UK if I worked with a particular comedian that I really liked and you would always do you know sort of five gigs in a weekend with them by the end of the weekend invariably their cadence would have crept into my delivery people like Tom Stade or there was another guy that I worked with um his name was Otto and he was just a joke teller and a one-liner guy but I just loved the way he delivered it and by the end of it I would find myself I would be in his rhythm and so I just, at the beginning, I was really careful about that because I remember someone saying to me very early on, um, oh, I was um, like Rachel Berger. And I just went, okay, I don't want to be like anyone. So I just didn't watch other comedians, which I think was detrimental as well because I think you can learn a lot by watching other people. But I just needed to be comfortable in my own delivery and that took me, you know, 20 years before. Now right. I can go and watch other comedians and enjoy it, but I had to be, yeah. No, I love watching other comedians, but I still to this day will not go and see another comedian <clears throat> immediately before my show. Yeah. Because if I see them immediately before my show, 100% their rhythm will go into my yeah. show. Yeah. Even if it's not like jokes that they're saying or whatever, mm. but just the fact that you for an hour have been set in the way that their rhythm works and the way that their energy works, it almost entirely will yeah, come yeah. into my show. I mean, Judith is a particular um, one because, I mean, I... You know, I love her, but I I couldn't go and see her shows for years because she has such a distinctive style and it's such a funny delivery mm. as well that you just pick it up so quickly. I mean, you even see it when people talk to her. Even people chatting with her tend to pick up because that's how she talks in real life too. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, so do you have like a – what is it like what is it you're trying to achieve when you're doing – yeah, your shows. Like, I mean, do you, yeah, do you know, quite genuinely, and yeah. I don't mean this to sound like, you know, lame, but when you tour in the regions, and I mean, it's exactly the same in the capital cities as well, but I just really want people to feel like it was worth going out to the theatre. Like, I want people to walk out of a show going, I had a really good time. Like, that's, that's honestly all I want, and I know that sounds lame, but I just really want people to say, that was a really good show. Like I just want them to feel like it was a show and they really enjoyed it. That sounds very lame. No, I know. No, I know. It doesn't at all. Absolutely. That's a... <laughs> but I don't have any kind of grand... No, but, but that is a grand thing. I'm, I'm not trying to convert people or, you know, turn them to a particular way of thinking. I genuinely want people to go away. And when people come up to me and say, oh, my God, that's, that's, that's the sort of thing that I would say or that's, you know, how I think, I find that really... I really like that as a compliment when yes. people say, oh, well, we it's like you're in our living room and you're listening yeah. to us. And it's like, I think, oh, well, it's not really because I'm funnier than you. But <laughs> I, no, but I genuinely, but I actually really like it when people say that. When people say it's, you know, you're just like us, yeah. you know, that's how we talk. And for me, okay, well, then that's it. I've, I've nailed it because that's what I want to do. I just want to, I just... It's the, so lame, but I just want to entertain people. I don't, I don't think want that them that to. That is lame at all. In fact, I think that is like the first and foremost stop that anyone who does our job sh- should be 
you know, using as their motivation. Like, you know, surely, right? I mean, again, I'm not here to prescribe what anybody uses yeah. as their motivation. People can be motivated by whatever they want to. But the idea that your motivation is to entertain people when you are an entertainer is not... I <laughs> don't, 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 don't want to change anyone's mind about anything unless it's, you know, to change their mind that something is funny that maybe they thought wasn't funny before. That's I mean, that's do it. you think that you can even change people's minds? No, I, I would argue can. to a certain degree that... The, even the idea that people's minds can be changed. Like Certainly by not by a, a comedian. By a joke. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, great if you can and you want to, but it's not my. It's certainly not my goal. I just... Um, do you think you are funnier than the people in their lounge room or do you think you are better No, I think at, I've... Roy I, and HG used to say that, um, you know, they would have someone come up to them and, go, yeah, and say... Um, you know, my mates are funny about footy in the way that you're funny about footy. Yeah. And their answer would always be, that's absolutely probably true. Our only skill is that we can do it when they turn the red light on. Yeah, and right. So do you think that you are funnier? Like, are comedians funnier than other people or are they just better at being able to be funny on the spot? No, I, I think it's it's different to that as well. I think it's the skill of a comedian is knowing and you don't even necessarily know but noticing the things that you think people will find are funny whereas people are always funny in their living room but they might not have noticed that that's something they could say in front of you know a thousand people and they would find it funny I think that's what it is and again it's not a conscious thing but it seems to be even when I see a comedian that I really enjoy and I'll stand at the back and I go God damn it, that's so obvious. Why did I not think of that? Like instead of laughing again, that's really funny. I go, oh, God damn it. <laughs> that is a really, really good, that is so obvious. How is that there and I didn't see it? And I think that's mostly. No, no greater compliment though for a comedian, <laughs> is there? Like for me, if comedians come and see my show and the, the feeling they're having is, oh shit, yeah. that was right in front of my face. Yeah. I should have thought of that. I would take that as no greater compliment. But I, I think that's the experience because I think as a comedian you have it. Well, I certainly do. And I think that's the experience that an audience is having too. Not necessarily annoyed by it because they right. don't want to go on and, you know, do their own show. But that's what you're doing for them is you're just going, oh, I noticed this thing and I found it funny. And, you know, and they go, yeah, we noticed that too. We found it funny. Yeah. Without, well, without the resentment that I have going, God damn it, I should have said that on stage before someone Well, else. I mean, but that's the thing, isn't it? When it's really great, when somebody has one of those really great jokes, it's mm. like it should have been so obvious. Yeah. But they were the person And they saw it, that. yeah. yeah. Um, when, when you're doing your shows, um, are you having fun? Is it like, is it, would you just That's when I have, when, when, when I'm doing my best shows is when I'm having the most fun. Sometimes I'm just a bit distracted up there and I'm still having a really good time because there's just nothing better. But I just, I live for the moments where I'm thinking of nothing else but what's happening and enjoying the show as much as people are enjoying it. Yeah. And I, it doesn't happen often enough, I don't think. I always have a good time. Like if I remember to go out, have a good time. Again, really obvious. Enjoy yourself out there. Um <laughs> But sometimes it's sometimes you just for me anyway because I have you know such a kind of tortured I just am always thinking of oh this and this and I should have done this and I should have done that if I can just let all that go and not worry about 
the fact that something might have gone wrong in the setup. No one cares if your curtain's crooked or your lights aren't straight. But I do, I get really worried about all those things. You and mean I, during the show or do you mean in no, general? No, in the setup, like, you know, like it's always that kind of three hours before the show when we're bumping in and... And I think because I do want people to walk away going, that was a great show, I don't want to just stand in front of a black curtain and talk. And that should be enough, you know, if you're good enough. But for me, I just want people to know that I've made an effort, I've brought a sparkly curtain, I came in here, I put my fairy lights down, I did everything because I want people to have a theatre experience. It's a beautiful theatre. You know, I've been to shows myself and watched them and just gone, I just, I love the whole thing. I love the whole thing of the theatre. And if I'm lucky enough to be working in theatres, but sometimes that then translates to I get so caught up in that that I walk out on stage a bit kind of, a bit pissed off. It's like... Not about the audience, but just about things that have happened beforehand. I was doing a show recently in Newcastle in the Spiegel Tent. And I like performing in the Spiegel Tent. You know, it's a a good venue. But this one, because there's a few different tents that they use, right? And this one, the way that it was set up inside the tent was that the corridor for people to come in, the, you know, that people walked in and whatever, was directly down the middle of the venue. So yeah. there's chairs everywhere except for if I stand, in the middle. which I do, like well, I stand in front of a microphone and yeah, look forward. Perfect. There is like four, <laughs> four empty rows right through the venue yeah. out the back. Unreal. There's 650 people coming to the show. I literally, if I looked forward, would not be able to see any of them. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I, as we're doing the sound check, I like – because – even if the corridor needs to be in the middle, which, again, I would argue it doesn't need to be. But anyway, if it needs to be in the middle, um, it was so it was set at a, like, clearly at a length of going, well, what if two people in wheelchairs come in at the same time and they need to go down side by side? I'm like, well, let's, I mean, I'm, I'm all for, you know, yeah. making sure that it's accessible for everybody. But sure. I'm not sure that we need to. And so I've said to them, and again, I didn't think I said it in, much like a complainy way. I was just saying, is, does it need to be, can we just put the chairs in a little bit or whatever? And I was made to feel like they, they literally said to me, oh, no one's ever asked us to do that before. And in my head, I'm like, how can no one have ever, uh, you've li- literally left an empty space where the audience should be. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one bit that I'm going to, um, and I remember that night, like the first five minutes of the show, just trying to get out of my own head. Yeah. Because I, I'm like, you've got to stop. Th- th- yeah, and it's you've nothing important. It's nothing important, but. Obsessing just, about yeah. the fact that there's no one there. Like all the rest of these people are having a great time, but just, I know what you mean. That's Take, exactly what I'm talking about. Just kind and of. Then, yeah. And, you know, and usually you can, you know, you can shake it off within 10 mm. minutes, but it's just that thing of. God, why Why does it matter? Why? But I think the other thing that people don't realise too when – and I, I don't think I'm ever cranky or terse with people. I try and always be really pleasant about yeah. things because there's nothing to be gained by being rude to the lighting person or the sound person because no. they're in charge of whether you can be seen and heard. Yeah. So there's no point pissing in them off. In a general sense, yeah. good to start with politeness as a base level. But, but I do always <laughs> think at the end of the day, like – People don't seem to understand that it's a really difficult thing to do all that and then instantly shake that off and get in a good mood. And you have to be in a good mood to do to do stand up. I think you do. Like I think you have to walk out there in a good mood. If you don't, it doesn't it doesn't work as well. And it's 
I find that really difficult. You know, I've I've seen it on stage as well, like being really careful never to snap too far at if something's pissing you off, like if, you know, when you've got drunk people or people talking or when it's really just driving you nuts, you can only go so, so far with how annoyed you are because if you snap too far, you can never get the happy person back. No one will believe you. No one will buy it. You snap too far and go, oh, for fuck's sake, shut up. Anyway, so what's been happening? And everyone goes, oh, frightened. Wow. <laughs> She's, this is all, this is all fake. It's yeah. not real. That's the real her, the one that just snapped. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I, fortunately I saw a comedian do it. it. It wasn't me. I saw someone do it and I just saw him struggle to get back to, oh, I'm just a, oh, just a guy thinking about this stuff now. And it's like, everyone's going, no, you're not. You're that guy that just snapped, <laughs> that just turned. <laughs> so that was always, that was really good for me to see early on, to always know that, you know, if you're going to snap, make it funny or um, keep it light or get the ushers and security to do it for you. <laughs> yeah. I had, uh, during the comedy festival this year, I had one night, because oh, I was running in a brand new show and I had a real drunk guy and he yelled at, and he was, anyway, he was, it was, yeah, the show wasn't at a point where I was confident enough with the show. Mm. Um, he was just, like, he his heckle got me in a way that I just must have, like, what I thought I was doing was having a good reaction to it, but I could just tell tonally it didn't quite, like you said, just went that little yeah. bit into the audience going, oh, this is not yeah. what we want. Because I remember he distinctly said, just talk about funny things. And in my head, I thought it would be like a good thing to explain to him that, well, my job wasn't really just to talk about funny things. My job was to talk about things and try to make them funny. And like, I I thought that I was doing it, but it just like it. And then you were just like the rest of the show. You you want to go, oh, no, no, I'm not. I know. It was like, I'll just. It's hard to get him back to everything's fine now. Yeah. Um, are you a person that uh, post-show uh, thinks about the show much afterwards? Are you a, like a – so if it goes well, do you think about it much? If it goes not as well, will you obsess about it? If it goes well, good times. I, I don't have to think about it. Um, if it doesn't go well or if two minutes of it, you know, annoyed me that I said this instead of that – Oh my God, I will think about that for days until I do the next gig. And that was one of the reasons why I moved to the UK originally because I just, there weren't enough gigs here and I was new and so I was making mistakes every night and then I wouldn't sleep until the next gig, which could be two weeks away, just lying in bed going, oh, why'd you say that? Oh, you know what you should have said? You should have done this, you should have done that. Whereas when I moved to the UK and could do three or four gigs in a night, it just, oh, it was just heaven because I would, do a gig and think, oh, I got that wrong. Okay, I'll go and do it right now at the next one or, you know, and I could fix it straight away because it is, it's a cliche, but it is that thing of you're only good as your last gig, only as good as your last gig. And so if you can fix it straight away, you don't have to think about that gig. The minute you've done a good gig after a bad gig, you don't have to think about that bad gig anymore. You can just think about the good one now. <laughs> uh, how long did you live in the UK for? I was there for eight years. It's a long time. Yeah. So were you... Doing gigs that entire time? Yeah, that's and all I did. What was, um, well, what was that like? Because I just never, I mean, I've seen people do it, obviously, and a, bu- a whole bunch of our friends and mm. colleagues and, you know, have had that experience in one form or another. 
but I never got to go and uh, you know sort of live in the UK and 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 have that experience. What what is it actually like on a day to day basis? It's um it's just a lot of traveling around, but because the UK is so small, it's so easy to do. So you just I mean, for the first six months I was there, I was basically on, it was like the equivalent of being on the reserve bench because I didn't realise I'd gone over there having no idea of what anything was like over there. I didn't have any contacts or anything. I just got an ancestry visa and went, oh, I'm going to go and work in the UK because I can. Landed, called up a couple of clubs and they all said, oh yeah, come down in six months time and um, we'll give you a tryout. And I went, sorry, what? (laughs) In six months. But I've just moved um, from another country. So I thought I might pop down tomorrow if the yeah. gig's on. They're like, no, we're booked out for the next. And that's what I didn't realise, that it's such a business over there. Everyone is booked up six months in advance. And so once, so what I did was I got in contact with a, an agent or a promoter who represented a lot of overseas acts from either America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And so he had a lot of people pull out on him all the time. They would often drop out because they couldn't get here. They'd get a TV gig. They couldn't arrive. So he'd have them booked in to do gigs and he would always have people dropping out. So I sat on his reserve bench for six months and I just got sent. I'd just sit there waiting for the call in the morning. I'd get sent to all ends of the UK just to do a gig. I travelled all over in that first six months just, that's, that's the dog, that's not me. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I travelled all around for six months doing all of the gigs just as a fill-in and it was the best thing because then they could all see me and then they booked me for the next six months. And so once you kind of have got through that first six months, then your diary's full for the next six months and it just carries on. It's just, it was the most insane thing for a comedian from Australia to have a diary full of gigs as a nobody and you're working seven nights a week if you want to, but guaranteed at least four nights a week and going all over doing clubs, Manchester, up north, down south, wherever. And was it fun? Uh, it was It was really fun um, for a while and then it just kind of got a little bit grindy, all the travelling. Like just you're away every, pretty much every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, coming back on a train from somewhere on a Sunday or usually on a bus because the bus replacement service on a Sunday, <laughs> no trains. Um, <laughs> and it just kind of got a little bit... Um, I really enjoyed it, but it was, it sounds like a cliche, but it was really lonely because I was always the only woman on the bill. And I'm not saying I can only hang out with ladies, you know, like lady friends, but it is a different energy, always having to hang out with men and always having to make sure that you're a mate so that you're not ever threatening a girlfriend or a wife or, you know, it's always, I mean, I wasn't ever cracking onto anyone, but you want to make sure that that perception is never there either because yeah it's just it's just hard always being the only woman so and i don't know if you know that but back in the day there was only ever allowed to be one woman on per show oh no 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 i'm i'm familiar with still, the, still the, i'm familiar still with the, the comedy policy now. that still yeah still is the policy of many places we've, we've got one with bosoms that's enough <laughs> yeah and in fact the fact that there's one in some places <laughs> yeah, is still that's plenty yeah um how is that though? I mean, because I've never obviously experienced it. I've grown up doing comedy in a country where the predominant style of people who did comedy, particularly in the, the, where I was growing up in it, looked like me. Yeah. You know, in some cases really looked like me. It got confused for me. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I was part of that idea of going, I'm a kid from a dairy farm in Denison. 
But the reason that I thought I could do stand-up comedy was when I watched people do stand-up comedy, they vaguely looked like me. Yeah. You know? Whereas, so I never had that sort of sense of, you know, being the, the one foreign, you know, like until I went to the US and worked over there where at least I had that sort of thing going. Fish out of water. I'm a fish out of water, yeah. right? But still I'm a white straight man in those yeah. rooms and those rooms were predominantly filled with white straight men still. So yeah. I've never had that experience. What What is it like? What was it like? How much has it changed? I, I certainly didn't ever experience any kind of, um, oh, you know, it's hard for me because I'm a woman. It's not, it's not that at all. That's not the feeling I ever had. It was more... Um, just that loneliness of, of – and because I'm not a big drinker either and there's a big drinking culture as well or there was certainly, um, you know, in comedy clubs and with the – in the dressing rooms and stuff. And, you know, I, I'm not going to hang around and have heaps of drinks with people afterwards so I would tend to just buy my, you know, sandwich at Marks and Spencer's in the afternoon <laughs> – and then, you know, if I could, like, just keep it in the fridge, burning a hole in my pocket, going, God, there's that delicious sandwich there. Don't eat it now. Save it for when you come home to your motel room. Save it for when you come home. You'll be really disappointed if you eat it now. Maybe just a bite. Maybe half of it and then half later. But that is what I would do. I would buy my sandwich, load up my fridge, and then, yeah, go off and do the gigs and then come home and eat my sandwich yeah. in a hotel room. And that's fun for a while. And they also paid you in cash a lot. So if you're ever in... A town like Manchester for three days, you know, there's a lot of shops there, there's a lot of stuff to buy. I would just go and spend all my money during the day. And it's like, I'm not even blowing it on drugs and alcohol. I'm just buying, you know, face cream. This is just, this is not. This is, there's got to be something else I can do besides go away, earn money to buy face cream. And uh, yeah, so I loved it and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed it. But I just think I noticed it was getting too much at the end of it when, I wasn't enjoying it and I thought, this is ridiculous. I've got the most enjoyable job in the world and I'm not looking forward to it every night. I was kind of like, ugh, I've got to go to Newcastle this weekend. Oh, God, I've got to go here. I've got to go there. It was starting to become a, a bit of a grind. And so when I came back out here and I started touring, that's why I tour the way I do now with my sister and best friend as my tour manager so that – I don't have to do it by myself. <laughs> so I was going to ask about that because I, I I wondered if that had influenced, you know, the way that you do your, you know, tours and your shows now, which is that you do have company. You know, yeah. This inbuilt company. Yeah. And also I do, I have a very relaxed tour schedule. We only do, I think, uh, it, it tends to be, I mean, it works out roughly at um, three days away and then two weeks at home. So we don't tour every weekend. We'll do Thursday, Friday, Saturday and then come back for a couple of weeks, have the next weekend off, and then go away again. And that works because my sister has kids that she needs to be home for. Um, but it also suits me as well, and I was happy to do that because I just didn't want to get to the point where I had the best job in the world but wasn't enjoying it. Like I didn't want to ever resent kind of, oh, no, I've got to go here this weekend. Whereas the way I do it now with my best friend as my tour manager, my sister in the show, it's like we all look forward to, oh, little trip away this yeah. weekend, guys. Where are we going? Okay, where's the good restaurant? We've already got our plans of what we're going to eat and where we're going to go. <laughs> so, yeah, it's just a really, really enjoyable thing to do, which I think is why I've, I'm have i just still doing it and still want to do it. Yeah, I think you've, you've worked – you seem to have worked something out that I think is the next stage of the evolution of how this job should be done. Yeah. I, I look at your touring model and I think – 
yeah, that seems much more sensible way to do things than perhaps the way that I have done things previously because I think you're doing the right amount of shows so that you can do great shows for people yeah. but also the right amount of shows so that you can love doing shows. Yeah, and I I never get I I never get sick of it. Like I don't kind of I've whereas I knew that was a risk in the UK you'd get out there and it was so easy to go on automatic pilot and just go god I do this three times a night I do this set I do you know um and just get not not bored I guess but just not excited whereas when you're only doing four shows every couple of weeks you do kind of really look forward to it and you do kind of and there is also that thing of because I'm very forgetful the first show back after two weeks was like oh hey this all feels new I hope it all comes back to me <laughs> now is that a good thing or a bad thing because what I I tend to do if I have a break between shows is like I quite like that first one back. Yes, I do too. When you're reaching for it and you go, oh, it's exciting. It's a real, yeah, I, I do. I really like it. But, um, what's the longest you've gone between two shows without having looked at, you know, your notes or whatever to, or do you even have notes? Is, like, no, is it, I don't. Is it written down somewhere or is there a, no. co- a recording of it that you'd go to if you needed to refresh it or are you just relying on the fact that, you will remember it and it'll be in your head. Yeah, I almost like that tension of yeah. I will remember it. But I do sometimes, like, I've just had the month off. So I've had July, uh, all of July off. And um... <laughs> Sorry. This is the, the dogs, the dogs are really relaxed now. now. They're now really they're snoring. Just, yeah, they've been. Uh, um, please don't be put off. Don't take that as a sign that they're not interested in the podcast. They like, <laughs> they like to download it and listen to it later. <laughs> But yeah, no, I've, I've had a month off and, um, and so what I will always do before the first show back is I sit down sort of probably about half an hour before the show and just, just type out like my equivalent of a set list really. Like just kind of, I I literally just go in my head, okay, I type this bit, then this bit, then this bit, but I have to write it down. Like I have to type it. If I type it, it feels like that's better than remembering it. Okay. Yeah. So I I type it out. Yeah. That's how I remember lines as well. That's how I do lines. Like when I, um do utopia i write them out but i write them out by hand for that because that's that's even more that gets it in my head even more but i just have exercise books where i just literally write my lines out over and over and over again like a punishment but then that's the only way i can remember them everyone had apps everyone on the set had apps because they're all younger and they all had apps and they read other people's lines into their phone and then it leaves a gap for you to then say your line just went oh god i can't do it i just would sit there writing them out by hand that's it (laughs) <laughs> how long do you have to learn like a script for a show like Utopia? Like if, you know, in between you getting your lines and yeah. you having to perform your lines, like what what period of yeah, time is Yeah, not long. This? Surprisingly short. Right, like right. we would get the script um, on the Thursday and then you'd be back at work on the Tuesday. So you'd have the weekend really, which um, sounds like a long time, but... <laughs> It's not really Sometimes given you've got that other things to do on the weekends. It's, it's not really given that uh, I never understood a word I was saying as Rhonda. It's really, it would have been much easier to say words that I knew what I was talking about. But I'm right. speaking all this government corporate yeah. speak. I have got I no can idea. I give you the gist, but I, I don't know what the gist of no. this is. <laughs> I don't know what this means. And you've got to be word perfect for for those guys, you know, because it's all written with a rhythm and it's mm. all written sort of to bounce off each other really quickly. So you've got to get it out and you've got to get it out fast and you've got to get it out right. <laughs> um, tell me about acting. Like how, how much of it have you done? Like do you like it? Is it a thing that you like get joy out of? Look, I love it. I, I really do love it. Um, 
I don't think of myself as an actor. I think of myself as a charlatan. I, well, that's what all that. That's I, what <laughs> no, I it's, think it's essentially pretendies. <laughs> Everybody is playing pretendies. I, I think I'm quite sensible, and I might um, end up hoisted on my own petard here. But I have never taken an acting job that I've been offered that required me to do acting. Right. So you, you believe know. that you're, but I, 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 I can do you, utopia you, you can because, do you. well, no, I can do utopia because it's. Written by funny people, yeah. it's written with a rhythm, and if you don't know what that rhythm is, the director, Rob Sitch, will tell you. If you say to him, sorry, how do you want me to say this, he will say it for you, and I can mimic whatever he says, right. and I will happily do that. I'm not a proper actor that doesn't want to be told how to say the line. If it's comedy, you tell me how it should be said because you heard it in your head because you know how it's supposed to be because comedy is different. It's it's not about the feeling and the emotion. It's about the timing and the rhythm. And so I want to read it the way they heard it in their heads. That's That's what I want to do. I want to deliver it the way they heard it when they wrote it. And I think I actually think that's different to acting. So I think I can do comedy acting. I could do characters, but I could never do anything where I had to be really serious and really in love with someone and I just couldn't do it. I just never. And as for a sex scene, forget it. How anyone can ever do a sex scene. Honestly, I just – and why do we why? need to see it? What do you it? mean? Why, what, could, what why do we not – in particular about doing a sex scene that is – like, okay, here's the I main thing. I can't do any acting, by the way. So, like, to set the base level, I've literally acted twice in my entire life in what something. Did you do? Both times playing myself, both times one line playing myself <laughs> in some show that Mick Malloy did that was, you know. Oh, okay. It was, um. The oh, Jesters? It was, yeah, no. the Jesters. Yeah, so I think I, I did a voiceover I in played that myself. I wasn't even allowed on. Yeah, one, <laughs> I did one line playing myself in The Jesters and I one line playing myself in Peter Hellier's It's a Date. Oh, when yeah. Stephen Curry's character. Uh, went on a date with Asher Ketty, but it turned out that he was doing stand-up pretending that he was in a wheelchair. <laughs> that was... <laughs> and what were you, the MC, bringing him I on? I was the headliner of the night, so he was, like, doing a spot at my, at my show. Unreal. Um, so I have absolutely no acting ability at all, which is... Well, I know is not true, because I know that I can recreate my own stories and... Yeah. Go back to a yeah. moment and I can make people think I'm feeling a certain way in that moment that I'm not actually feeling. I'm yes. recreating that feeling and whatever. So that is kind of acting. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I but, agree. But I understand that idea of going, and I guess eventually if somebody was like, oh, I have this thing that's basically you that we just want to put you yeah. in, then I, I guess I could do basically me that they've put me in. Yeah. But I understand what you're saying. I don't. It's on. Feel like it's I'm, on your own terms. Like you know, yeah. acting in your show is on your own terms, and uh, but, but yeah, the, I mean, but I, it's still I, acting. If you're acting in a thing, you're an actor. You've acted. Yeah, and I'm very lucky with the character of Rhonda. Is that she is the bitch character, and honestly, the bitch is so much easier to play than the nice person. You know, everyone can be a bitch. It's just it's the angry. <laughs> The angry character, the bitch character, the aggressive character, they're all so easy. Like it's when you have to be nice. Like Celia Pacuola does the heavy lifting in that show where she has to be, you know, pleasant and put upon. She has to do all the nuanced acting. 
And same with Rob. He does she a lot does of the nuance. She does nice very well, though, Oh, Celia. my God. She has a great capacity to do nice. She does nice, but she also manages to, like, undercut it with just a little hint of, you know, oh, I'm pissed off. It's like, wow, I, I don't have that sort of level. Well, I just, that's, yeah, and it's like watching Celia in Rosehaven where she does nice but with the bit of bitch. Yeah. Like, there's a bitchy element to, or at least mean-spirited. Yeah. Or like, you know, fun mean-spirited, but... She she manages to do both at the same time. I think I'm, I'm good guessing at... she probably could act. I reckon we've decided that she yeah. could actually. Act. I, I can do one dimensional. <laughs> but she's but she's done like things like you know in the bath as well. Like that's what I was talking about the sex scene thing. Yeah. Like, so what what about the sex scene is particularly confronting? Well, first of all, I don't even need to see it when I'm watching films. Like if people walk into a bedroom and shut the door, I'm happy to imagine what's going on in there. All I need to see is the door closed. I'll imagine the rest. Honestly, I will. That's I've got a good imagination. All I can ever think is if you were doing a sex scene, what if you started doing it and the director called cut and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's not sex. Exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just the, it's, you, it's your worst nightmare you, to be going, oh, my God, I'm this old. You're not your ears at all. I've, what been, you? <laughs> I've been doing it wrong for all these years and now all these people are watching and everyone just goes, oh, my God, that's how she does it. <laughs> That's what my fear would be. that And, you know, forget, like, the fact that then your parents would see it. I didn't even let my parents come to my recent um, stand-up show. Why? They've come to all my other ones, you know, against my will. But this time I just said, oh, can you not come? I said, because I did actually talk about sex in this show. And it's jokey, but I still, the one night where a couple of my mum's friends came, like quite close family friends, it just ruined my night. Right. Like, and I wanted, and they were like, oh, it was great. We really had a good time. I was like, yeah, you know what? I didn't. Like, yeah. I really didn't enjoy it knowing because that you, you were sitting were there watching, going, oh, that's interesting. Oh, goodness me. Oh, you just, I don't know. There are certain people I just like to remain completely like, let's never discuss that subject. So, <laughs> your parents are both alive? Yeah. And uh, where did you grow up? In, uh, in Sydney, in Northern Beaches. In Sydney. Northern Beaches of yeah. Sydney. So, what what's what did they do? What do they do? What did they do? What like just to give a sense of you know the yeah how you grew up. Well, my dad was in advertising, and uh, and he uh, was a creative director at a big agency, and then he uh, he left and went freelance when I was ten, which you know is so common now, but back then that was a huge thing to do and I think you know I didn't realize at the time but I think he was incredibly stressed about would he still be able to provide for his family as a freelancer um and you know he certainly did but I think there was a very nervous kind of at least six to 12 months where he wondered if the work would come in because it just wasn't a thing back then no one went freelance then really I mean that's back in the 70s and and yet you've chosen a career that is a like you're a freelancer. Yeah, like comedy, but I think comedy is a freelance career. Like, I mean, yeah, one hundred percent, what it is. You're you're a freelancer. Yeah, and I think probably because I had that example of you know, it always did turn out. Yeah. Something always did turn up. You know, um, I, I and and neither of my parents ever pushed me to do something sensible, um, which I think is surprising. They always just kind of. I guess felt like, I mean, you know, I did a lot of waitressing and stuff and I think they always thought, well, I was fairly competent and I'd always, you know, managed to make the rent or whatever. So if I wanted to do comedy, go ahead. But I really only did it because I was jealous of my sister and all the attention she was getting being a musician. 
It's like, God, <laughs> she's on stage every night and everyone thinks she's great. What can I do? I can't play an instrument. I can't sing. Shit. I guess I could talk. <laughs> So, yeah, it was just kind of like, oh, she seems to be having a really nice time on stage every night. What can I do? So, um, yeah, I went from going to her gigs all the time to thinking, well, I, I, I think I want to do something too. So, but she, but she was very sensible as well. She got a degree as well. So she had a backup as well as being a musician. Whereas I just went, oh, I'll just be a waitress and a comedian. <laughs> good stuff, everyone. This is a good plan. Well, as as your dad's example show, it, it all something always out. turns up. He, he had a he had a yeah. um he had a friend uh, that he worked with, an art director that used to always say that, like whenever you'd be worried about, you know, and it was a very trite philosophy. But I do think of it a lot. I always think he always used to say, oh, something will something will turn up." Okay, yeah, okay, and he was always right. Like something did always turn up. So yeah, it's been fine. What do you do? Because, like as you said, if you're doing say three shows every, you know, two weeks, mm. right? Three or four shows, you know, like that's your kind of schedule. Yeah. What's What's the rest of your life? Oh, I know. What am I doing? Like I should have I so much time to do other stuff. Way that you've reframed it. <laughs> what <laughs> I, am I, asked, I doing I with my days? Curiosity, <laughs> and you turned it into something else completely, which was an accusation that you're wasting your time. I think that all the time. <laughs> I look around at how many things people get done, and I just go, I don't know why I can't do more. I think I'm not. And I also hate the way people say they're multitaskers because I think multitasking is bullshit. I think you're just doing a bunch of things badly at the same time. I I um, agree with yeah. that. I will, I will say that I absolutely agree with that. And I look, I think that whether it's true or not, that, yeah, that women have more of a capacity to multitask than men. I don't know if that's true or not. I, can't, I will never be able to know. But I, <laughs> I know that from my own point of view, I've been doing this thing recently that I promised that I wouldn't bang on about, but now I've gone the complete other way where I'm just like, fuck it. I'm just going to bang on about it. I don't care. Which is that I took Facebook and Twitter off my phone. And I've actually changed my phone now to what they call grayscale, which is like black and white. Oh. But essentially what I'm trying to do is not look at my phone. Yeah. These are just yeah. ways of me not looking at my phone. And what I've noticed is even I realized I'd forgotten how to watch television even. Yeah, right. Because now I will try to sit down and I will watch something. And it took me ages to watch a show without like wanting to pick up my phone and be going through my phone while I was watching the show or whatever. Yeah. And then I realized the whole time when I was like, no, I'm doing two things at the same time. I'm you know, responding to my emails and watching this show. No, yeah. no, no, no. You were not watching that show. Yeah. You were missing big chunks of that show or you weren't. So I agree with the multitasking thing. I think that there is some... Uh, truth to that but what are you doing then well what i've discovered about me is i can do stand up plus one other thing okay so what's Uh, the one other thing that you're doing well i just finished um a a book uh so that was that was the one other thing (laughs) (laughs) that's funny i can't actually read a book if i'm writing a book so i can't i can't read and write at the same time i can't yeah if i'm writing a book i have to not read anything or i can read non-fiction but that's it i can't um I can't read while I'm writing. But, yeah, just finished um, writing a book. And 
it took so much of my time and I just, I can't do anything else. And I was supposed to have that book finished a lot earlier, but earlier I was doing Utopia and I just, I couldn't do Utopia and tour and write the book at the same time. Each thing required a slightly different mindset from me. And it just, in order for me to do something well, I need to really concentrate. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just, yeah, I'm really limited like that because, you know, it's, I'm in a good position at the moment where I'm getting offered things, but I have to say, I can't do it because I physically wouldn't be able to do it well enough at the moment. Like if you can wait until I finish this next thing, then I can do that thing. But it's quite limiting and I do I do wonder how people do so many things, like especially when you see American comedians who are touring and making movies and writing books and doing everything. And I think I, I honestly don't know how they're doing everything because I, I can't do I would suggest that most of those people have an infrastructure around them. Yeah, That it maybe. means that they're only dealing with the... It's not like they're having to do all the grunt work and all the legwork of all those things by themselves. Yeah. Um, I uh, am interested, though, in your capacity to say no to things because I think as a comedian that is often one of the hardest things in the world to do because you start out... um, you know, with no one yeah. wanting to give you a job. Mm. And then if you're lucky, eventually people start to offer you things. And certainly at the start, your your temptation is just to say yes to everything because you're like, well, you've yeah. gone from being offered nothing to being offered things and you assume that at some stage people will stop <laughs> yeah. offering you things. But what I've recently discovered is that, you know, I had to start saying no myself because, I mean, I have been okay at saying no over the years, but even... I thought I was better at saying no than I clearly was. Yeah. I was getting to the point where I was like, oh, no, you have to have, like, you have to go with some big hard no's. Yeah. You, know, you can't just say yes to a new thing without realising that it means you probably have to get rid of one of the other things that are already in, you know, yeah. what you do with your life. But you seem to have a better handle on, is it hard for you to say no to things still? Look, the hardest thing for me is that I, I find it very difficult to, um, relinquish control of anything. Mm. I think I would be better off if I could. Well, it's not not even that, I guess, but if I had a few people that I worked with, what am I trying to say? But even when I did my five minutes on the weekly, every week, God almighty, you know, the effort I put into five minutes, people would be embarrassed for me and just go, really? (laughs) It takes you that long to come up with five minutes. I mean, it was an okay five minutes, but Christ, woman, do you have to put, you know. People would be embarrassed for me. I do, I think. You know, but I enjoy it as well. Like I enjoy the intensity of it. And I had a producer on the um, weekly, Tom Peterson, who he was one of the people – you know, you meet so few of them in your life, but he was a person that I just, I could trust him to do anything. He would, he knew exactly, we thought the same way, we had the same sense of humour, we found the same sorts of things funny. He he just had the same sensibility and so it was a joy to work with him. But we also would get really involved with what we were doing and, and put a lot of time into a five-minute bit, you know. And so when the opportunity came up to do 
a show that would essentially have been 30 minutes of five-minute bits. I did want to do it, but then there was also a part of me that when I've done nine years of five-minute bits when you count the project and then the weekly, I'm kind of out of five-minute bits. But also the fear for me was I would need half a dozen Tom Petersons in order to make that show work because it took us so long to do five good minutes and I would want 30 quality minutes and I would never be prepared to just go, okay, well, shit, we've only come up with 14, 16 minutes of filler. I just, that would, that would honestly kill me. And maybe the show that I would be putting out wouldn't have been great, but so long as I was happy with it, so long as I felt like, okay, I think that's funny. Like I don't mind if people watch my five minutes and they don't think it's funny. So long as I thought it was good and so long as it was done the way I wanted to do it, so long as there wasn't anything in it where I was going, oh, you know, it would have been better if we'd done that or changed that or made that shorter or whatever. If, I, if I'm happy with it and we're both cacking at the end and laughing at it, I'm happy for that to go out. But I just couldn't see how I could produce 30 minutes of that every week and, and be happy with it. I just, so I just had to say I can't do it, which is a killer because it's kind of what you maybe if I was younger I could have but I just feel like I I couldn't have sustained the quality of it um what is the show I mean because it I imagine that people have you know asked you with you know like hey we want to make a Kitty Flanagan mm. you know project mm. whatever it is you know yeah um what what is ideal like if you were just you know unlimited time unlimited resources yeah. You know, blank slate. What yeah. what does that look like? That show that you would make. Or I want to do. Yeah, I want to do scripted. I've been wanting to go into like scripted stuff for ages. I think I feel like that's where, oddly enough, and it could be wrong because <laughs> all I've done is bits. But I feel like my strength is actually longer form stuff. Um, it's kind of what I do on stage is tell longer stories and characters within the stories. And so I've always wanted to do like a scripted comedy rather than sketch or bits or and so that's that's what I would want to do and I also you know having done four years on Utopia there's a very good working model there that um, you know I'm familiar with and so now I can see how that can work and I can see if you get the right people then it is a manageable show whereas the idea of doing a show that would be bits 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 I, I just couldn't see how it was ever going to be managed without a much bigger budget and without a lot more writers and without it was something I didn't feel like I could take control of and I think that's my problem is I can't let go and let someone else be in control of it um so so when you're not working what does your life look like pretty much this but with different dogs yeah (laughs) (laughs) this but with furrier dogs tell me about Um, because I did uh part of uh you know, I was I was n- nervous about asking you to come and do the podcast again because I was <laughs> embarrassed about losing it last time, and we had had such a lovely chat. And then you, in your typical style, were like, "Oh well, I said all the interesting things last time. I, <laughs> I can't." So I hope that we've had a different conversation this time because that's what I was like. We don't have, need yeah. to try to repeat last time. Yeah, we'll I was, I was a... worried. I was worried about being the drunk at the party that's yeah. just telling you the same stories yeah. again. No, I thought that we were capable of. <laughs> from the fact that you and I are capable of having quite lovely conversations when we run into each other, I thought we'd probably be able to manage another conversation. But I did pretty much lure you over here yeah, by saying that the dogs were here. Yeah. <laughs> there was a limited time period. The dogs might be here, so please come over. Because I didn't get to meet them last time. Um, no, no. The house has got furniture and dogs and cat, a whole new thing now. Um, animals. 
talk to me about animals and and your relationship with animals and and you know what they mean to you what role they play in your life well i think i mean they're just they're just the best obviously <laughs> um but i was thinking today how um that maybe I would be able to do a bit more if I didn't have my animals. But then I think I would, so also, I would also probably be a bit sad at home and lonely. Um, but I was thinking, you know, my dog's got to have an operation and he means he needs eight weeks sitting in a cage, which is just going to kill me. And so that means I really can't go anywhere for eight weeks. And, you know, now all this stuff has just come up where I've been offered, you know, to do these things but it means I need to go up to Sydney for a few days and I'm, my first thought is oh who's gonna look after my dog though and that is that's pretty bad <laughs> to, to be thinking oh I don't know if I can make that writer's room because I got a dog in a cage that I got to look after at home I mean the dog's in a cage like some surely somebody can look after but that's why he needs me there yeah, it's true if i leave he'll think that i've just put him in a cage, in a cage so i can go <laughs> he doesn't realize that being in the cage is for his recovery yeah. and because i've got two dogs now it's going to be really hard i'm going to have to put him in the cage take the other dog for a walk and he's going to be like oh why is the other dog the favorite why why do i get in the cage and so i might even have to put the other dog in a cage as well just just <laughs> <laughs> just to try and show that there's no favoritism you're going to come to my house. It's going to be like a zoo next time. There'll be a cat in a cage, a dog in a cage, another dog in a cage. Oh, and if my landlord's listening, it's just the one dog. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, just the, just the one dog. <laughs> and it's in a cage. No, it's, it's, it's not fine. wreaking havoc. No. Um, uh, have you always been an animal person? Were you like, was there animals in your life when you were growing up? Not like, I mean, just the family dog. You know, which is probably different. I mean, you probably had farm dog. Which yeah, I well, think... we didn't have pet dogs because you had farm dogs. Yeah, like it's a very different sort of. Yeah, you know, I find I struggle with dogs. I struggle with country. I went out with a country boy for a while, and oh, I really struggled with his parents and their attitude to the animals. The animals. <laughs> yeah, that I used to call the them. I used to like, call them cat kickers. Yeah. Like if the cat was in the way, they'd kick it. Yeah. So, oh, if you kick my cat, I will fucking end you. Yeah. Just yeah. don't kick my cat. Yeah. The, the, they don't quite understand that the animals no. are not only allowed inside, but they live inside. <laughs> oh, yeah, and they sleep in the bed, by the way. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was talking to somebody at work the other day and they were like, oh, my dog did a shit in the house. So uh, now he has to live outside in a kennel. And I was like. But he doesn't understand you, that. You live in a weird. My, my dog. <laughs> If that was the rule in our house, no, I'd be sleeping in a kennel. Oh. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I didn't yes. have. Um, look, I think at one point in my life, you know, when I left school, I think I thought I was going to be a marine biologist because I like dolphins um, and whales. <laughs> and then I think I found out that being a marine biologist was just, I don't know, studying plankton or something. Yeah, you so don't get a lot of dolphins. You don't get dolphins and whales. Um, but yeah, I'd never really. I, I didn't get a cat until – I kept putting off getting animals. I always wanted an animal, but but I just kept putting it off because I was always touring, I was always this. And then I got a cat and I lived in an apartment and I got a cat because I thought I'll never get a dog because I live in an apartment. And um, so I got a Burmese cat. Oh, they're just the best cats. They are They're like a cats. dog. And um, 
And then I so ended up living in a house. So um, he, uh, when, when we got Ramona, because he was the, the dog cat, was not impressed at all yeah. and moved across the street to the neighbours. Oh. Like moved, moved out of home. Wow. Because that's funny because I had the cat first. For a for meals and then eventually they were like, no, nah, we're happy to feed him. And it's like, okay, well, I guess you live across the road now. Well, that's funny because that's I, I always say that when I, I had the cat first, then I got my dog. And I always say that when I brought that dog home, the cat looked at me like I've never seen a cat that looked like it could pack a suitcase. It just... <laughs> Honestly, it looked like where's my stuff? Because I'm the minute you I'm I'm going. It just the look. It was repulsed by that dog. It just thought that dog, and it even used to go out into the yard where the dog would, you know, poo. And I had bark chips, and the cat used to scrape bark chips over the over the poo like it was that disgusted by it. It would actually. <laughs> if only I could have trained it to give it plastic bags and say, go pick it up. But it used to just make these mounds because I was coming out going, where are these mounds of bark chips coming from? And it was the cat like covering it up, like finding it disgusting. It was like it was giving me a message going, you're a dirty woman. Come out here and clean this up or look I will at, do it. Look at what this dog is <laughs> yeah, doing. Repulsive. So, um, but yeah, and then I then I got a dog and, and I just kind of realised that um, – I don't know, you can, you just make something work, don't you? You just work around whatever. Like everyone said, don't get a dog because you tour all the time. And, you know, that's good advice. (laughs) I probably shouldn't have. (laughs) But um, just I think the benefits probably outweigh the – I I spend an awful lot of money on dog minders and dog care. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. I just – I mean, the minute I – the minute I drop them off at the dog minder, I just I've missed them already. It's really sad. That's why I'm quite glad I never had kids because I just think I would have been hopeless. I love my dog so much. If I'd had a kid, I would have been a nightmare as a parent, a helicopter In that parent. You would love, you'd love them. Oh, so much. I would have smothered those children. I would have just I would have hovered around. Just you know, I would have worried all the time that they were going to die. I cry sometimes about my dog dying. Like he's he's not going to die. But I sometimes I think about it and I just start crying. I just go, wow, what's going to happen when he dies? Oh, no, I live a lifestyle commensurate <laughs> with the idea that I'm going to die before the dogs. Really? As in like, you know, anytime no. I think, oh, I shouldn't be doing this or I shouldn't be doing that, you know, I should get more healthy or whatever. I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't want to outlive the dogs. <gasps> see, I, I know. The, see, that's the saddest thing the for me. That's the saddest thing about dogs is that I'm, they're going to die first. That's what I always say to you. Not know, if I have any say in it. <laughs> It's like, you know, people when they, oh, people and their kids and everything, but then they don't realise how hard it is. It's like, at least your kids will outlive you, like, whereas the dogs won't. Did you um, think, that, did you consider having kids? Is having kids something that you had thought about? I didn't, By the way, if you, if you don't want I didn't ever, I didn't ever consider um, it. I didn't ever consider it because I wasn't ever in a position to consider it. I yeah. didn't want to be, um, I didn't want kids that much that I was prepared to do it by myself. Yeah. You know, I can barely have a dog on my own you know um although again you're allowed to take kids more places than dogs yeah which does make them they're more portable well in australia at least in america you can uh, i mean i I mean i was gonna say you're not allowed to take your kids anywhere in america (laughs) (laughs) maybe i'll move there yeah no i mean more yeah you can take your dogs everywhere like i mean the amount of places 
that I would tour in the US where yeah. they would have dog-friendly hotels. You, you're certainly allowed to take, take your dogs on the, on the plane. plane and stuff. Well, that's my dream here. My next tour, I want to do it. I want to get like a van so that I can just take my animals on the road with me because that's the hardest thing is always having to like take the dogs to the minder, go and do the gigs, come back, pick the dogs up from the minder. So, you got to kind of you got to put them in the show. That's the yeah, trick. and then you're allowed then to take them into to the have theater. A whole justification for yeah. them being there. Yeah, but I would happily tour in like a camper van if I could take my animals with me. <laughs> <laughs> But the problem is I don't think anyone else would want to come on tour with me. No, no. They'd still so, want, all the others would still want to fly in. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, yeah it would just be me and my Pantech truck. <laughs> you, and the, you and the dogs and the cat in a van. And the problem with that is too, once I had that, then I'd just start collecting more animals along the way because i go, well, it's all portable now. <laughs> just pop them in the van. End up with a pony, maybe a goat. I'd have everything. Yeah, it'd be great if the van rocked up to a gig and there's just a horse trailer behind it. It's just a petting zoo now. there when you started out on your journey. Now, come and see the show. Bring your kids. They can go to the petting zoo. Yeah, exactly. The kids can go and play with the animals. Um, All right. So um, there's some standard questions that I tend to ask on this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, And I asked them last time. But these are the only ones that we have to go over again. Okay. Um, The rest we've managed to... Do you you remember what I said? Like, because I don't want to get them wrong. What if I say something different now and you go, that's not what you said last would time, be, well, liar. Firstly, I would say this, which is that you're, you're a different person to sure. who you were last time when you did the podcast. Um, I recently you know, did an episode with uh, M. Rossiano and we'd done an episode like a year before as well. And they're very, very different mm. episodes because she was in a very different place in her life than she was last mm. time we spoke. So... I always think when you ask people these questions that like you, all you can ever ask of somebody is to let you know what they're thinking in that particular mm. moment. And I also think that, you know, there's probably a fair chance that if, you know, we did this podcast tomorrow instead of today, it'd be different <laughs> again. You know, that's that's the nature of how these things are. But um, but some of them, perhaps you will say the same things. Uh, what do you think happens when you die? Oh, I don't want to be bleak, but nothing. <laughs> I just think you end. I mean, we would just know by now if anything else happened. There uh, would just be, there would be proof now. We've been around long enough that there would be proof if something happened. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not like we're in the dark ages. It's all a mystery. Oh, what's happening? It's like, we would know now. Someone would have devised a way to get to the other side if there was one. Uh have you, and monetize it. Have you, well, that's you know what when you put it like that. <laughs> yeah. That that is, so. Um, was there ever a time in your life where you believed anything other than that? No, I, I I was always scared of the devil. I don't know why. I think just growing up, I was always scared of the devil. Mm. Um, but that didn't mean that I believed in God, which is weird. I think maybe I did a little bit when I was younger. I just believed that, but always in a you know. A God will get you kind of God, you know, if you do something wrong. Like that's the Catholic thing of, you know, it wasn't some, Jesus was always very, you know, benevolent and loving, but God was always going to get you if you did something wrong. And the devil, I don't know why I feared the devil because God was going to get you anyway, but I did used to have a weird thing where I would go to sleep and I thought that if you went to sleep thinking of the devil, that was leaving your mind open to him and so he could get in. I watched Rosemary's Baby when I was too young. Did you ever see that movie? And I think I used to always fear that the devil would, and um, the portrait of Dorian Gray as well. For some reason, I watched that when I was very young, and they both had a real 
devil effect on me where I thought that, God, what if I go to bed, you know, thinking about the devil and I'm thinking, God, if I just, you know, if the devil would just give me, you know, big bosoms, I would sell my soul to the devil. (laughs) Like as a prepubescent teen with like just no sign of puberty (laughs) ever coming in. And then I think, don't think that. He'll get in now. He'll get in. He'll get into your head and you will have sold your soul to the devil. That's such a weird... I blame the Catholics, but um, and so what I would do is I would literally go to bed thinking, think, okay, think nice things, and I always think, okay, cake, cake is nice, cake is good. Don't think about the devil. Think about cake. Think about cake. <laughs> so I didn't ever fear going to hell, but I just feared that the devil might buy my soul without my knowing about it. Interesting. Weird. No, I think. that's interesting. <laughs> I, I, um, so uh, do you think about death? Only in that um, I think it's quite a relief, again, not having children. Like I see friends of mine with kids who genuinely worry about dying because what what about their kids? And, and that is a real luxury to not have to either worry about my kids dying or worry about if I die, what will my kids do? My only thing is if I die, I have a friend who has promised to come and put an axe through my computer because I just don't want anyone seeing all the half asked shit that I've written. I don't like anyone. I don't even like people. Look, I won't write in a cafe either in case someone leans over my shoulder and goes, oh, that's shit. I just assume that everything is shit until I'm ready to, you know, until it's all finished and nice and wrapped up and then I'll give it someone. But all those people that, you know, I've had their manuscripts taken out of bottom drawers and yeah. published posthumously, I think I would hate that. Yeah, I don't want any, That's not I don't fair. want anyone getting a bunch of my like recordings on my phone that I've made of my stand up gigs and going all two packs mum and keep <laughs> putting out albums after <laughs> albums of like three sides. No and way. Unformed ideas. Nah, once you got if you didn't if you didn't sanction it coming out, then that's it. Your art dies with you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in going through people's stuff and going, Oh, I found this manuscript. They didn't want that published. Um uh, do you care about being remembered? Do you know, I don't think I do. Like, I, maybe I used to, but I was thinking about that recently. I was thinking, oh, and then I thought, I, it doesn't really matter, does it? Like, I think you've got to be truly memorable. And I, I think I'm perfectly adequate and doing the job that I do well, but I don't think... I'm trying to think who died recently that I thought, God, yeah, that's an amazing legacy and an incredible body of work and that's fantastic and they deserve to be remembered. And how will I be remembered? By my Hello Kitty special on 10 Peach? You know, and I just thought it just, it's not really, it doesn't matter. It's not, I'm not, I'm not a big enough presence in the world, like, and that's fine. It really is. It just doesn't, yeah, I'm not that, I just want the bits that I do to be good. That's all I want. <laughs> Just, um, but I did think about one thing. Yeah, if I had a choice, because you know people say, "What do you want done?" You know, do you want to be cremated? Do you want to be buried? Mm. Like my mum just wants to be burned and say nothing about it. Like you know, she just doesn't want to discuss it. She doesn't want to be buried with a plug. Just just burn her, and and that's fine. Yep. But I was thinking half recently, half. <laughs> <laughs> one half very, one half burn. But I was thinking recently, because I really like natural history museums. Yeah. Those old ones like in Paris, you know, where they have all the things in formaldehyde and all the stuffed things. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could be stuffed? I would love it if I could be taxidermied. 
Like just in some position that would entertain someone. Well, how about this then? What about if we... Because, yeah, I think this would be an idea that a lot of comedians would respond to, is the <laughs> idea that you'll be stuffed and still kind of on display. Yeah. So how about... But in an amusing way. Yeah, but what if we put together like a an actual you know exhibit of dead comedians where you could go and like, you know, sort of... <laughs> Except, except you couldn't all be holding a microphone doing stand-up. No, you would no, have no. to think of something entertaining. All in comedic positions. Yeah, like I think I would, I would like to be sitting cross-legged in front of a television with my mouth slightly open. There you go. I think that would be that would entertain people. All to walk in... past and just see me slack-jawed yeah. in front of my friend the television, <laughs> Kitty Flanagan and her best friend the TV. When uh, people speak of you. What would you hope that they say? Like audience people? Just in general. It doesn't, there's no. Well, obviously I hope people, you know, who watch me think I'm funny. Like I do, I honestly, I really like it when, and I have, I I seem to have a really nice demographic of, um, I I don't want to call people fans because that makes out that they're, you know, fans, but people that like my work. And I, I really like it when people say that to me, like in a street, like, and people are so nice. Like they'll just say, oh, I really enjoy your work. Like that means a lot to me when people say that. They don't, you know, they're not kind of, they're just being nice. Like just in the dog park and stuff when people say, oh, I, I find you really funny. I really, it's really nice because you don't always get that when you're on television. Like you get it live, yeah. like you get that instant response. But when you're doing stuff on TV, and this is where most people see you, you know, is either on Have You Been Paying Attention or The Weekly or whatever. And so when people come up and tell you that they enjoyed it, it's actually a really nice feeling. Like I don't find it, you know, I know a lot of people go, oh, I get bothered by it. It's like no one ever bothers me. Like I rarely get approached in the street anyway. Um, I say that's because I feel like I look like a homeless version of myself because I never wear any makeup. <laughs> people just walk around going, that looks like. Kitty Flanagan, if she was homeless. I um, have had that. That's how I have been described also. <laughs> like, I, I didn't come up with that about myself. At least you've, at least you're, that's your line about you. But I actually had somebody recently say to me, oh, you look like, you look like a homeless version of Will Anderson. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this is awkward. But I was, I, I was actually thinking about it this morning and I thought I would hope and again, God, I just, I, I need to have grander ambitions, but I really hope that people who meet me would think that I was nice. And I don't think nice is a bad thing. I think, I, because I think I don't necessarily have that um, reputation. I think I'm seen as quite um, maybe aloof, but really it's just, I'm just not very comfortable until I get to know someone. So it takes me a while to kind of get to know someone well enough that I can be instantly personable and chatty. But I always try and be polite and nice. But, um, yeah, I think I think it would be – that's what I would like is for people to go, oh, she's actually a really nice person, not she's a stuck-up control freak that just will not let it go, you know, <laughs> which I think is probably the reputation I have. So that, I mean, well, you probably answered the next question in that answer, which is that do you think that people have a misconception about you? So would it be that? Well, I don't even know if that is a misconception. I I think I, I do like to maintain control of things and I do like to be in charge of things. But I don't think that's a bad thing. 
And I think that's where, and maybe, and this is the one thing where I will say I feel like this is an issue being a woman. I really struggle with being in charge and being in control and not being called a bitch and a diva for it. Like always having to, never just being able to come out straight out and say, can you move that? Can you do that? Can you do that? It always has to be, oh, do you know what? It wouldn't be, it'd be great if you could maybe, and oh, just, it's quite exhausting not being able to just cut to the chase and say, do it this way because I said so. <laughs> and I would never be rude about it, but I know when it comes from me as opposed to coming from a guy, and I know this for a fact because I have a man who's a tour manager, and if he says it, it's all fine. If I say it, it's a bit, oh, well, she's a bit fucking up herself and a bit fucking, oh, it all has to be perfect. Whereas if he goes in and says, it's like, yeah, mate, no worries. I do find that annoying. Yeah. <laughs> well, for good reason. I yeah, imagine. it's just, it's exhausting. And, you know, quite often when you're nice about things, they call you a bitch and a diva anyway. So you go, what was the fucking point? I should have just come out and said, <laughs> just do it. Um, what do you think your greatest strength is? Um, it's probably a weakness as well, but... Well, my next question is what your weakness is, so you can just answer them both at the same time if you want. Well, it's not a weakness, it is a strength. I I don't have, um, I don't, the quantity of material I produce isn't, it's not a lot because I, I, I just, I want to do everything really well I never want to do anything that I'm unhappy with again I can't judge what other people will say about it but I hate putting out something that I'm not happy with so it does it takes me a long time to do things like it took me a long time to um, write this book that everyone thought I would be able to turn around in a month and I just I just can't do that because I just need more time and I need it to be good and I need it to be something that I am pleased is out there all the time because that's it. It's out there now and I can't change it once it's out there. That's that's the hardest thing about doing things like TV and um, books is once they're out, they're out. Whereas with stand-up, you can always fix it and you can always change it and you can always make it better. But with a book, you need time because you don't want to put out something half-assed and then be picking it up going, shit, should have done this better. Uh, can we talk about the idea of filming stand-up? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, it's a hard thing to do when mm. you because as you said with stand up you know it is a constantly a work in progress and it's also a conversation with you and that night's audience so it changes from night to night depending on the conversation you're having with the audience from night to night and then if you're going to do a special you know or you know or we call them specials now but yeah. you know you're going to do a DVD or you're yeah. going to do whatever you want to call it you're going to tape your show yeah. basically tape it um then Essentially, you then have to, uh, like, well, here is the representation forever mm. of what this show was, even yeah. though, like, it's a hard thing to, well, just talk to me in general about what, anything you'd like to say around the idea of taping stand-up, he says, without wanting to push too far in any, just in a, in a general sense. Okay, the first time I ever yeah. taped a show was at the Opera House, um, and you know, put a lot of work into the set and everything and it looked beautiful and um, it was just going to be, we're just going to film this and that'll do. And I, I'd literally just come back from the UK. So we're just going to film all my material and that's it. Yeah. And then we did that and then I got 
my segment on the project and so my profile started to lift a bit and um, I started doing a tour and what I did at the Opera House turned into a tour and suddenly I just went, don't put that to air because now that's that's literally just a catalogue of my bits, me just going and then this bit and then this bit and then this bit, whereas now I've turned it into this show, which is so much better. And I had a hard time at that stage convincing my manager to put that one in a drawer mm. and let me film it again and we filmed it again in orange and I probably would have wanted to film that again because I forgot to take my pants to orange so I had to borrow some <laughs> pants and they were too they were too small. So people always say to me I look really fat on that special because <laughs> I'm wearing pants that are too tight. Because if you arrive in orange of all places, like at I mean, five o'clock on a Saturday in orange, there's nowhere to buy pants. Or Melbourne or wherever you can get another pair of pants, but you're in fucking orange. So, but the thing about that show was that I still say that was one of the best performances I ever did, as far as when you film a special, you're always aware that you're filming. It always gets in your head a little bit, and I feel like. The tight pants show was probably one of the best performances I did and one of the most enjoyable where I just went, that just, everything aligned and we filmed it and I couldn't have been happier with the performance. There was nothing where I went, oh, I wish I'd done this, I wish I'd done that. And then ever since then, it's kind of been, I think we we filmed two for my next special. We did two nights um, for the following one. We filmed that in Perth and again, did a great show and uh, a show that we thought was going to be the one, but it was actually turned out we used the earlier one. But again, there were a couple of bits where I I just couldn't be completely happy with it, so we cut a bit of the second one into the first one. And you can see it, like my hair suddenly changes. It's very hard with my hair to, to make it exactly the same. <laughs> but just those sorts of things. And then the third one was... Um, I thought it was a good it was a good performance and a good show, but it just I don't know, there was something in the room. I, I let them for the first time I let them have the lights on the audience, which I usually say no to and I'm always trying to they always try and talk you out of that. You know that. Mm-hmm. They they always <laughs> want a shot of the audience. Yeah. So you can see how many people are there and, and I've always said, right. No, no, have them in the dark and on yeah. this one I said, All right, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm good enough now, I can have the lights on. Oh no, I no, can't. can't. No, I can't. Comedy so t- talk to me People need to sit in the dark. Yeah, they need to feel tell comfortable. Me why. I mean, I, I know why, but tell, yeah. tell, I the, think tell the podcast why. <laughs> I feel like when an audience is sitting in the dark, they're so much more relaxed and they're so much freer to laugh and they don't feel like anyone is watching them. They don't feel like you're looking at them. The number of times people think you can see them from the stage, you can't see a thing. And people say, you were looking straight Show at me. me. And if the lights are on, then they'll feel even more like that. Yeah. So... Yeah, no, I I love when someone's like, oh, you were staring straight at me when you made that joke. I was like, I was staring into a bright light that was in my eyes. And even when I can (laughs) see a couple of rows back, sometimes there's spill onto the audience, you can see a couple of rows, I will always look between people because I hate putting people under pressure. I feel like if you eyeball them, they will feel obliged to laugh or worse, they won't laugh, they won't feel obliged (laughs) and then I'll just be looking at them going, fucking laugh. But... I always look between people. I never eyeball someone straight out, unless I'm talking to them specifically. But um, so yeah, so then I and because it only comes up once every three years that you or two years that you film a special. I made the same mistake recently where I let the lights stay on at the recent recording of my um, 
latest special, and uh, so I'm doing it again now with the lights off. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it was it was a good show, but I just felt like people weren't as comfortable as they could have been if we just turned the lights off. It doesn't matter if people think I'm performing to an empty theatre. That's okay, so long as the performance is fine. So, yeah, I just – it's that thing of not remembering, like because you only do it every couple of years. If I was filming a special every week, I'd have it down, but you just don't do it all the time and so you just make the same mistakes and you go, oh, no, I've done it again. How do you um, feel about people watching your stuff? Like, yeah, because stand-up is such a – a live sport. But of mm. course, not everybody can go out to see a stand-up show and you're not going to get tour yeah. to everywhere. Like, you know, so eventually, like you said, you, you tape the show so that you have a, you know, th- this is what I did for these, you know, two or three years. Here's yeah. what it was. But also so that people who won't have the capacity to come and see you do a show might have the opportunity to see that show. But it's a very different experience sitting down watching a, a stand-up special to watching that you know, show while you're, while you're yeah. in the room. Yes. It's, well, yeah, and it's hard too because um, stuff that you can say in front of a live audience, you know, you can swear in front of a live audience and it's no big deal. When you're swearing in someone's living room, it's a little bit different, I think. I think sometimes it feels harsher. Like I think most people wouldn't notice that I swear during my show. I'm not a massive swearer, but I do I do swear consistently throughout. But I think you probably notice it more on television. You think, God, she's she's swearing a bit because you're sitting in your living room. Whereas you'd walk out of a live show and go, I don't think she swore, did she? So that's different. Also, yeah, I rarely get complaints <clears throat> about my swearing at a live show, but geez, when they play oh. my special on the ABC, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. And I think it's harder to. Um, and it's something and that I, I noticed. But also, what I love about that is when somebody contacts me. Like having oh. watched my special, like because ABC at one stage had one of my specials that I oh, signed yeah. some thing where they decided they could play it like six times over four years or something, and so it would just roll around on a New Year's Eve or something where they had to fill in some time, and then suddenly I would have like all these messages from people telling me I swore too much, yeah. and I'm like, a this take it up with like, the ABC. A this shows from like three years oh. ago. B, what do you expect me to do? I can't go back and edit out the swearing. Like, the yeah. show's been taped. Yeah. You were literally watching a show from three years ago. <laughs> like, anyway. I know. I find that with content as well. Like, there are some things, you know, from my earlier shows that, you know, I probably wouldn't do them now, mm. especially if I thought that's going to be played on television in right. 10 years. I might not put that in a show. But there's certain content in a couple of my shows that every single time, and it's the same deal. I've signed something where apparently someone's got it on rotation. <laughs> And you go, here we go. You know, and it's like, if you don't like it, don't come to me. No. I'm not doing that material anymore. That's now Channel 10. Exactly. They're now yeah, doing that material. If you want to, it off, tell them because I can't change complain it. Complain to the person at the ABC who keeps thinking they can play my special. Yeah. But I've taped my special. Yeah. I'm done with that. I don't do that material Actually, anymore. I don't do that material yeah. anymore. I've listened yeah. to you. If you I don't like do it. it. <laughs> I've moved on. The you first should. time you complained, I took that on board and I went, right, I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. I can so, barely remember the bit that you're referencing, to be right. honest. So, um, yeah, so there's bits yeah. that are, you know, 12 years old now that still come back to haunt you and you just go, I, I can't do anything about that. You'll need to take it up with the network. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help you. But thank you for your anger. Okay. So um, strengths and weaknesses we've, we've dealt with, yes or no? 
Yeah. Did, we, did we get there in the end? Is your weakness different? Because you said... Oh, my weakness can... is thinking way too much about everything that just okay. doesn't matter and, and thinking that everyone is... That, that I am apparently the centre of everyone's universe. You know, that people will notice that I've done this. No one is noticing anything that anyone else does. That's what I need to remember all the time. But that is, like, I mean, at the essence of the human condition, isn't it? That we're, we're all the stars of our own movie. Yeah. And if we knew how... We wouldn't worry about what people thought of us if we knew how little people think yeah. of us. As I mean, how, you know, the people don't... People don't... If you don't go to the party, no one really notices. No. But, but just more things like, you know, if you're sitting in a restaurant, like I've never sat in a restaurant and looked across and seen someone by themselves and thought, oh, that person's got no friends, that right. person's lonely. So why do I assume people would think that about me? Do you just assume no people sense. think it about Not you? Anymore. Yeah, Not okay. anymore. Not I'm, anymore. I'm, I'm far better with all that stuff now. But when I was younger, I did used to really – and I think it doesn't matter so much now because people have phones, so maybe people don't feel like that anymore. But, you know, their phone is their friend quite literally. But um, – you know, back before there were phones and you'd be sitting somewhere by yourself, I never worried if I was working and I would go and have dinner before work or after work, whatever. If I was doing a gig, for some reason that made me immune to anything else. But I would never think on a Saturday night, oh, I might just go out for dinner by myself. I would never do that. Whereas I would now. You know, I'd just happily sit at the bar in a restaurant and have dinner by myself. And it's not a lonely thing. I don't feel no. like, oh, what a lonely lady. It's just... Sometimes I just like nice restaurants. <laughs> There's no one to go with, so I'll just go by myself. <laughs> and because you can sit at the bar, I find that really nice. I quite like sitting up at the bar just having dinner. Yeah, I, I like a meal, but, well, I mean, I think it's very much, you know, with the job that we do. Yeah. You know, if you don't get used to the idea of, like, having a meal by yourself or yeah. going to the movies by Yeah, yourself, I'm not self-conscious then... about it anymore, as I used to be, whereas now I, I just, well, I'm probably a lot happier on my own some of the time. <laughs> Especially seeing a movie. I love nothing more than an empty movie theatre. Oh, yeah. I don't want some asshole ruining this for me. Jesus. No. I don't want this to be affected by anybody else's reactions (laughs) at all. Thank you very much. Um, All right. So uh, we're going to finish up. But uh, so I've asked about uh, strengths and weaknesses. Uh, Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. I think we've covered most of the things that I generically go for. Uh, What happens when we die? Oh, okay. So sorry. This is, we didn't really get to this, which is do, do you believe that there is some sort of meaning to our lives. So it's the companion question to, you know, what happens when we die, I guess, is, you know, that if you're living a life where you don't believe that, you know, you're on some mission to go to a heaven or some right. afterlife or be you become energy and be part of the universe or whatever, do you have th- thoughts about, you know, what the meaning of life is, what the purpose of life is, or at least what the purpose of your life is? Is it something you think about at all? I do think about it in so much as I feel like I should probably do more, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but what does that mean, do more? Oh, what What would that actually mean? If you, I, you say, do, I do more what? Do more things that are worthy of just... <laughs> You're not even enthusiastic about the sentence, <laughs> Kitty. <laughs> I don't know. I just I see all these people doing amazing charity things, and I think I should do that. And then I just go, oh, I don't have time. <laughs> that's not. That's not good enough. I don't know. I just 
Sometimes I, I feel like the job that I do is very enjoyable. Mm. Like I'm talking about stand-up. Yes. Um, it's a very enjoyable job and I'm very lucky to have it. And so therefore there should be a balance to that where I then, I don't know if it's giving something back, but I don't know what form that would come in. Like what am I going to do, go and help poor children tell jokes? I don't, I don't know how I could give back that would be – you know, well, you do some charity gigs. That's what you do. Do some charity right? gigs, do some sure. Charity do some charity gigs. gigs. You know, make a few random donations. But I just, yeah. But also, you know, like I mean, you have a you you have a job where you're trying to make you're trying to bring some happiness into the world. Yeah, that ain't sure. Which that's, in that's of itself a bit is, grand. Is giving something to yes, but you can't deny. I'm not saying that it's like. You know that you're, yeah. It's comedians without borders. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm saying, in a general sense, like you know, you're not digging up, you know, someone else's traditional land to mine something that you're then going to turn into something that will destroy the atmosphere for your profits or whatever. Essentially, yeah, you're thinking. Up oh some, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm better than BHP. You're thinking up some <laughs> funny idea in your head. And then a whole bunch of people come to have a good time and they tend to have a good time. Yeah. And that's because of you and then everyone goes home. That's That in itself is you putting, you know, you get something out of that, yes. But yeah. also you are putting something positive and joyful into the world. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. So what I'm saying is you don't have to go and teach kids how to tell jokes <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Felt like it was too much trouble for you, so... <laughs> <laughs> What um, here's here's yeah, the thing. On. I would, I I will, I will help anyone that asks me. But I think that's the problem is a lot of people don't ask. Like, uh-huh. and I put myself in that position as well. Like, I would do anything that anyone asks me yeah. to, like if it will help. But the thing is, I don't think people are very good at asking for help. Like, I know I I would never, I would never ask people to help me do things that I would happily help them do, which is a weird thing. I don't think that is weird. In fact, it's something that I've been trying to uh, work on myself yeah. and it comes up a lot. I'm back at therapy and it comes up a lot in therapy is that I would in a minute do so many of the things that I would never ask anybody yeah. else to do it, yeah. for me. What, and what I would get you know, pleasure or – well, I mean pleasure maybe is the wrong word, but I would – Feel no, but I like the feeling of helping, helping people. Yeah. yeah, and yet I would never ask anyone to help me because I think, oh, they, oh, that'd be annoying for them. Yeah, but why is that? I don't know why it is. I'm paying a therapist a lot of money <laughs> to try to work it out, but don't have all the answers on that yet. But I. So yeah. So if anyone needs my help, just yeah. just call me. That'll be my charity work. If you need my help, just just give me a ring. I'm happy to help. Uh, all right. Um, we're going to finish up. I feed your um, animals. I mind your pets. How do, how do how do we feel about second go around? Did you feel like you were? Oh, as insightful I, as the first time I around. think there's a few boring bits in there that you'll need to cut out. It'd be good if edit, you could... Um, I don't edit. Oh, really? It'd be great if you could make this a nice tight, you know, 40 minutes that people could really enjoy. That's what I'd be doing <laughs> That's what you would do. That's what I would be you doing You would slave it. over it for you the better. next six months. You'd release four podcasts a year <laughs> because you would spend three months going through it, just finally tuning it, rearranging yep. it a little bit. Yeah, that would be a tight yeah. 40 minutes. That's, yeah. about, that's about all people need. I don't think they need any more. How long has it been? Uh, how long do you think it's been? Oh, probably about an hour and 40. Yeah, um, that's a little bit more than that. <laughs> oh, yeah, see, you got to you got to take an what hour out of that. What we've given people, Kitty, is 
quantity. And that's, <laughs> what, that's, <laughs> that's not what I that's want, what Will. People want. It's not what I want. It's quantity. Two hours of oh, non stop quantity. No, you could, you could lose an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> and I wish you would. Well, I did last time. Uh, this is the final question of the podcast. Thank you so much for coming to do it again. I do appreciate it. I always have um, a extremely delightful time when we get to have a catch up and have a chat. You are a person that I uh, like a lot. I think you're a brilliant comedian, um, but you're also just a human being that I enjoy being in the company of and getting to talk shop. I like talking shop with you. Yeah. We get to talk about comedy and stuff a lot, but just oh, talking life and these sort of things. So I appreciate that you came back and did this. Well, it's been a pleasure. And can I say there is, you know, people always say that having a dog in your lap is very relaxing and I've had Winnie next to me the whole time. Winnie's been there the whole time. She's, and it was actually more relaxing this time. Yeah, she snored a lot. <laughs> um, and then at some stage about half an hour ago, because I've had like 19 cups of coffee today, it's Friday afternoon, so a week of doing breakfast radio and then a few other things and... Um, I've got to do something after this. So I, I was like, before this started, I was like, you know what? I'll have one more coffee. <gasps> Fuck. Do you have something? You I have missed to an do appointment well? at three o'clock. Oh, shit. Fuck. Is it <laughs> important? Is yes. it an important one? Oh, I didn't realise it was that late. Oh, God. I mean, it's not that late, is it? Yeah, it is. Oh, no. Oh, no. Sorry about that. I'm in big trouble. Oh, God. Was it really something really important? <laughs> oh, shit. Well, it's, well, you've missed it now. So you can okay. answer this question and All then right. I'll let you go. Um, <laughs> it might be a good question to ask you right now. If you had a time machine <laughs> and you could go back to any moment um, in your life and uh, um, either change that moment or just watch that moment happen, um, observe the moment mm. or change the moment. Uh, it's a it's one trip. You get to go back and forward, but that's it. Okay. Um, do you take it? And uh, if so, what? where do you go to and what do you do? Back to about the first 10 minutes of this podcast where I said that I was funnier than people in their lounge room and I thought that sounded incredibly ungracious of me. <laughs> and you've been th thinking about it ever yeah, since? Yeah, I thought that was really ungracious. Why would you say that? <laughs> That's what I would do with the time machine. If you're not going to edit it, I'll go back in the time machine and do it. <laughs> All right, I'm we're going to stop talking because you have to go and ring whoever your appointment was with and apologise that I have kept you here for way too long. I must admit that I did not realise it was quite that late either because I've got to actually go and do some radio in about <laughs> half an hour. So I probably should stop this too. The end. <laughs>